This is fun. Yeah, it's right? good to see you too. Great. We're having a great time. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Yeah, it's real good. I'm feeling I'm feeling irreverent today. <sighs> cool. I, haven't, I wanna, been, haven't been to church in a while. I want to show cheers, Brady cheers to that. my hey, surprise. Everybody. Cheers to that. Clink. 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 All right. You want to show me your surprise? <laughs> Just you wait. I'm, I, I've been on edge all show. Allison's giving me weird, weird eyes. Good. Doomed to walk the earth as slaves for the Lord of the Living Dead. Exhumed from the grave by a mystic voodoo cult. This is Solid Six Movie Podcast, a movie podcast where we discuss two ghoulishly mutated yet strangely sublime movies, their tentacles clawing for each other, and their bloodthirsty plans for the world at large. <laughs> the Blood Moon Rises. And we are in our third installment of the Spooky October Spook Fest of Surplus Spook Juice Spook Cast, episode 31. Ooh, ooh. Also, also known as the Halloween Special. I'm your host for today's episode, Josh Griffith, and I'm joined by Allison DeGrazio and Brady Kimball. Hello. Known for both gruesome brutality and barely restrained sleaze, the single phrase, flesh and blood, can be used to describe British film colossus, Hammer Horror. Oh, I thought you were talking about... I thought you were talking about... It's talking about hey, me. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> flesh, blood, <laughs> blood, flesh... Anyway... That's our topic for today's moot. Two films. If you dare, taste the deadly passion of the blood nymphs in 1970s The Vampire Lovers. And your nonstop ride to hell boards at 8 p.m. in 1972's Horror Express. But before we do that, we've got voicemails. 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 We do. That's right. Send us a voicemail at solid6.net slash voicemail. You can do that straight from your phone, one of your cellular telephones or one of your smart devices. Or you can record something and email it to us at podcast at solid6.net or send us an email. We'll read it. All right. First up, here we go. I just wanted to say this podcast is the best podcast out there. It's amazing. Like... I love hearing the thoughts about the movies and stuff. I don't know. Keep up the podcast, please. Thank you so much, whoever that was. That's great. <laughs> Thank That's you. Awesome. That was yeah, really nice. It. Yeah, I think we had a name on that. But again, if somebody doesn't actually give us their name on the recording, I won't I won't actually. That's fair. Well, for whoever that was, that was very yes. nice. Thank you so much. We, appreciate it. We will continue to do this until we're dead. So, you know. Forever and ever. Next Pretty year. much. From beyond the grave. Pretty much. Basically, we, we did a blood pack. Blood pack? Packed? There we go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> An unholy covenant. <laughs> yes. We did a blood pack yes. where basically this podcast, when we started at the beginning of the year, it was going to go until all of us were in the grave. So We cut the palms of our hands and spit into them and then and did a high five. on microphones. Yeah. <laughs> Our souls now live in the soundboard, and we have like undead bodies just cruising around doing our day to day activities. It's true. Well, given keeping my, the soundboard alive, I'm probably the first of the three of us to go, just given my drinking habits. But whoever's last between the two of you, I can just see you like in an old person's home, just like this is Solid Six, episode two thousand six hundred and seventy three. I'm hosting here with my caps, <laughs> all sixteen. Sixteen nameless cats. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, oh sorry, we have another yeah. one. Hey guys. One here. Um, I've really enjoyed the last two episodes. The kind of fact that you're doing double features is pretty cool. Um, I'm, I wasn't a big fan of Pumpkinhead when I was a kid. 
but I've kind of grown to like that film. And Raw Head Rex has always been an interesting film because I always like Clive Barker's adaptions of his own stories, especially when the producers continue to fuck with him. <laughs> you know, and I kind of agree with you, the whole idea of the Hesher monster running around. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Hereditary House, I thought was pretty neat. Um, I love House. I think it's one of the greatest films ever made. Boom. Um, I think maybe I'm with Josh. I saw or read about that film before it started making the rounds online and was because you're cool. criterion started screening it. Um, and then hereditary, I think it's just a great film from a, you know, up and coming director. And I love his first film midsummer, <laughs> you know, his newest film midsummer. I think it's the best fucking film, especially everything that's going on in the world. It's a film that I just can wrap my head around and really enjoy like a warm blanket. I don't know if you get that, but like my life's a little more crazier than yours, maybe. But I enjoy the hell out of that film. Um, yeah, keep it going, please. I'm a little drunk right now, so um, <laughs> this is the most current I can be. All right. Same. I'm going to run out of time. Bye. Bye. Thank oh. you. Thanks again. Aw, Vaughn. Yeah. I love, Thank yeah, you. I love Vaughn's voicemails. That was mm-hmm. the most Vaughn ish. Of the voicemails because he was very sincere. Get the no, real deal. None of his friends that he knows called in. There you uh, go. I like the friends too. So do I. Yeah. But uh, he stuck the landing. I love that. Was a weird flex where he was like, "I'm really drunk." And oh, by the way, this uh, this voicemail is about to run out, and we only have 90 seconds, so I'm going to hang up literally a second before 90 seconds. Oh wow! Nice so, execution. Stuck the, the landing. Move. Thank you. Uh, of his voicemail, the thing that I appreciated the most was. Just him recognizing that Ari Aster is making movies that strangely have, for some people, this cathartic feeling, right? Like, because he kind of hinted that things are things are a bit challenging. I for would him. love to be a fly on the wall of Ari Aster's childhood. Good to hear. Yeah, thank from you so much. Bon. We appreciate it. Hammer films are a gigantic topic, which we hope we will cover in much greater detail at a later point. But at least we can gloss over some of the basics in this episode. But before that, let's check in. It's it's full on Hooptober. Bray's watching movies. Allison's watching movies. What's popping? How have you guys been? So good. So busy with the movies and studying. I passed my goddamn test. Woo-woo! I'm a licensed motherfucking esthetician with no job. Hey. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Did yeah. a lot of work. Very excited for you. So thank you. It was it was good. She was studying her ass off. I was. Yeah. My actual ass off because I haven't been working out and it's slowly sliding down the back of my legs. <laughs> so October's flabtacular. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't been a flabtacular. Let me year. tell you. Uh, so what have I been dabbling in? Let's see. I did I did Brain Dead yesterday. Oh yeah. Uh, the uh, the American version, which was not great. Wait, there's so, a remake. So that not the uh, not, not the not Dead Alive. Not Dead oh. Alive. Yeah. Okay. So which was originally named Brain Dead. Uh huh. But the uh, 1990 version with Paul, uh, Bill Pullman yep. and Bill Paxton. Oh. Which I have to assume they must have thought that it was going to be a better movie <laughs> than it actually was. Because the idea is very interesting, okay. but the execution is such a bummer. Yeah. Um, so that one... Uh, that one was a big question mark. What else we got? We did Slugs, which I highly oh, yeah. Slugs recommend. Slugs was a hoot. Slugs that was, was great. great. That was really a surprise. A lot of fun. Yeah, yeah Slugs that was, was good. That was excellent. I had zero, zero expectations for Slugs. And I kind of was resisting it based on the box cover. 
but it was actually a lot of fun to watch. I don't mean to go there, but you you, you see like a sliver of labia too, where I was oh, like, yeah. that uh, just brought this movie up by 60 points. Yeah, there's a scene where the two kids are like uh, getting it on in bed. And meanwhile, like the slugs are infiltrating the room. Like on top of a tarp that they just put down on the set, which was really funny. It's just like a black tarp Weird. covered in slugs. So the girl gets up to do something or other. And then the moment she puts her foot down, she basically slips on the slugs, yeah. which are carnivorous, by the way. Yes, they have tiny fangs. To know that. That's and cool. she falls on it. They start eating her. And she's like rolling around covered in slugs, like all covered in blood as well. Mm-hmm. As her boyfriend like can't decide if he actually wants to like get in there and save her or no, not. No, he doesn't. He's a little puss the whole time. Oh, man. So anyway, now did slugs. When, when the slugs were chopped up, did they have blood in them or do they gooey? Like, you know, there was a there was a scene where they're making a salad and a slug gets into the salad greens. This was the most exciting part of the movie because this gentleman oh, eats right. the slugs. And then Josh was in this outstanding mood where he was trying to do a countdown of when this guy's face was going to explode. Because they kept dropping cues. Like he was like, oh, he has an upset stomach. Yeah. And then this is happening. But because, you know, the music is always a good indicator as to like when the tension is going to build. Yeah. Like nothing's happening. And then he gets this other scene where he's, you know, the situational irony where he's having dinner with some like out of town clients or something like that. And he gets like a little nosebleed. I'm like, oh, it's any second now. It's any second. Josh was literally off by a half second. And then like just all hell breaks loose with this guy just basically exploding. Yeah, his his face explodes. Nice. And then I would would say the other highlight for the week is we watched Basket Case. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that was great. It's been a long time since I've seen that. I need to go back and see it. And I want to bring up the fact that I think Basket Case is, you know, a particularly frightening monster Mm -hmm. because he has dead black eyes. Oh. You cannot put... And the noises he makes. Oh, just the constant screaming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, yeah, dollar dollar for dollar, like dollar spent on monsters. And claymation. And claymation. Like, they actually got a pretty effective, scary little monster. It's terrifying. Belial or whatever his name is. Yes. uh, Absolutely terrifying. And, yeah, you can't put a sclera on a monster eye because it makes it too emotional. They got to be like shark eyes, just just pits of black hate. I haven't been able to go back to that movie because I don't like Wicker. I'm not a big Wicker <laughs> Basket fan, so... That's yeah, a hard no. It reminds me of when Torben would go to Pier 1 with my mom, so... <laughs> really, really painful. Really painful. <sighs> and then with slugs, when you brought up labia, like, to me, it's like labia is the true slugs. That's the snail trail. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, it was all about snail trail. But uh, yeah, there's she slips at one point, and there's like a a scissoring, if you will, <laughs> a scissoring motion, a scissoring motion with her legs, just landing on the ground. Yeah, oh, and okay. then and then it's it's just a a fleeting moment of a of a young child's fantasy <laughs> <laughs> with blood and slugs. That's awesome. I'm into it. What were you watching, Brady? Uh, I got two things. Um, one was Upgrade. I, it was uh, listed as a horror movie from 2018, but it's more like a near future dystopia where a guy is paralyzed. He's shot in the neck or somewhere in the spinal cord, gets severed from a uh, bullet. Yeah. And a Mark Zuckerberg slash Google type person has a chip that allows him to 
get fully functional again. And so it's like it becomes a revenge movie about like getting revenge on who killed his wife who was with him. I keep hearing good stuff about this movie. And I I kind of disregarded it when it came out. Upgrade. It's surprisingly good. There's some really cheesy dialogue, which is I'm fine with. You know what? You know, with like B grade movies where kind of like what Josh was doing with like waiting for the person to explode. The equivalent for me with this movie (laughs) is like I was waiting for the scene to end and have them have some stupid, cheesy ass, sarcastic quip, you know, that segues into the next scene. Sure. Yeah. Like you like say something, put your sunglasses on and walk away. Yeah. Yeah. So it kept doing that. That was its biggest downfall. But it kind of was charming because everything else in this movie was like amazing special effects, like really interesting action uh, choreography, very accurate use of technology, very believable in regards to it feels just slightly out of touch from what we can do today, but believable enough. Right. Right. Um, That, uh, yeah, thumbs up for that one. All right. That's cool. I was was surprised. You know who directed it? Uh, their name is Lee Wanell. Huh. Oh, he did The Invisible Man. Hey. Was that the one with Kevin Bacon? No, the Elizabeth Moss movie from this year. Okay, because oh, that's good. <laughs> I did not know he did The Elizabeth, the Elizabeth Man. <laughs> We're just going to move on. I'm not going to edit that out. <laughs> the other movie that I watched that I want to talk about is Hellraiser 2. Yeah, yeah, so good. Arguably the best of the bunch. Capri says the same thing. My wife Capri. The thing that really stuck out to me with this one is the skeleton giving the other skeleton head. Like that'll just yeah. that'll be the thing that I'll remember for years to come. We didn't talk about this with uh, with um, Rawhead Rex, but like a lot of Clive Barker's stories are are like crazy sexual. Yeah. And there was actually a time in Clive Barker's life when he wasn't doing that well as a writer, where he was working as a male prostitute. Oh, oh you, re- you briefly uh, touched I, on it. I but. totally forgot to bring it up when we were talking about it on the show. Yeah, but she, uh, yeah, so it do- it doesn't surprise me at all that a lot of his films have these like crazy sexual overtones. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like the sex death combination thing shows up in horror like all the time, yeah. I guess, but him just like making it like a little more overt. Oh, yeah. Is, uh, is appropriate. Hellraiser. Yeah. Hellraiser always makes me question if I'm too, too much of a prude when I'm just like, they just seem like they're having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> lots of whips, lots of chains, yeah. <laughs> lots of blood. Am I missing out here? <laughs> a lot of being constrained and restrained. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was good. Uh, Josh, Josh mentioned that it was his his favorite, and I'm not, I'm not quite there, only because the love triangle, of the first one, was so interesting with the brother in law and the husband that can't be made up for in the second one. And also the second one has that trope that I'm not a big fan of where it's like the mute child. Oh Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that trope was a little, little not on the level for me. Over it. Other than that. Yeah. Great movie. The special effects are incredible. There's lots of amazing blood and contraptions and traps and yeah. The Cenobite, the Cenobites. Yeah. 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 They are always incredible. The Cenobite, the chattering one, is he in the second movie? Yeah, he's one of my Chatterer. favorites. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I like him a lot. Yeah. We'll have to cover Hellraiser or one of the sequels in greater depth at some point. Yeah, no, I agree. I was going to yeah. choose one for this uh, this spooky season, but I really wanted to like go hard in the paint. Got it. Got it. So. And also, since we just did Rawhead Rex, maybe a little breather between we, before we get to yeah, like, oh, there's like Barker. Hellraiser. Well, sure, but he didn't direct it. Okay. We just wrote it. Which one? Uh, Rawhead Rex versus Hellraiser. So he wrote the speak to keep that going. 
So he wrote Hellraiser 2, but didn't direct it, unlike the first one. And I can't really tell what his directorial eye is. Hmm. Um, I don't know what he other, what other movies he directed. He did the did he do the Pit in the Pendulum? No, Lair of the White Worm. I don't know. Anyway, listeners are probably screaming right now, listening to what I'm I'm saying. But I will go watch more Clyde Barker directed movies and get back to you as to what I think his his eye is. Cool. But if we go and watch Hellraiser, I suggest uh, I suggest we do like really far distant sequels. So like we do Hellraiser Seven. Oh shit! With like Jason X. <laughs> oh yes. boy! Or yes. Freddy oh, versus God. Jason. Yeah, yeah. Just like carbon copy of a copy of a copy. copy yeah. 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 Keep, yep. Yeah. Could be fun. No, I, <laughs> what's that one? It's like Hellraiser Bloodline. Yes. Right? Okay, yeah. The one where they're in space. All right, so we have we have Hellraiser, okay. Nightbreed, Candyman, uh, The Midnight Meat Train. That's what I like to call it. <laughs> that one I've actually seen, and I'm actually pretty okay with that one. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> that's the subtitle for a Hellraiser movie? No, 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 no. No, that's, that's, that's the, the, the title. Clive, Clive Barker movies. Oh, oh, oh Clive Barker sorry. movies, yeah. Uh, let me see. Director. Master of Illusion. Was that one of his? Uh, Lord of Illusions. Lord of Illusions. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it was, um, yeah, Lord of Illusions, Nightbreed, Hellraiser, The Forbidden, and... Salome? Salome, yeah. Mm. Interesting. I do not know these movies. Salome. I think, other than the movies Allison's talked about, the only thing that we've watched recently that's not horror has been Notting Hill. Oh yeah, that's oh, right. I love that movie with Julia Roberts mm-hmm. and Hugh Grant. The the roommate, the, and the, the roommate, the yeah. masturbating Welsh roommate yeah. is really truly my favorite part of the movie. Reese Ifans, I think is his name. It, y- you sound like you know what you're talking about. I believe you. I yeah, I, I don't was, know, but I believe you. Yeah, he was in the first Charlie Kaufman movie directed by Spike Jones. Oh, what's the name of that movie? He plays like a caveman that they get they teach him how to speak. It's in, that Encino, Encino Man. man. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, human Nature. Okay. Oh, and it's not Spike Jones. It's Michelle Gondry. Idiot. Jeez, Brady. Patricia Arquette. Get it Tim together. Robbins and Reese Ifans. Yeah. Good stuff. Patricia Arquette. The best of the Arquettes. Yeah, Notting Hill was good. We did that because I was in such a bad mood. We needed like a palate cleanser. That's true. Yeah. It, we we were in just a, it was just a bad day or bad moment. Yeah. And the horror just wasn't really helping anything. So what are you talking about? Decided to make a radical left shift. I've been having terrible dreams every night. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when Notting Hill came out and the conceit of the movie where she is the biggest actress in the world. That is a ballsy move and it works. Like it's a very believable She's a very believable character that way, right? She's she's the one that's the most famous actor, right? Yeah. Not him? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What does he do? He, he runs a bookstore. He runs a traveling bookstore. Yeah. What the fuck is up with rom-coms and dudes in bookstores? I don't... Or no, wait. It's... Um, Meg Ryan owns a bookstore. And a you've bookstore. got mail? Yes. So it's not just dudes. It's just bookstores in general and rom-coms. I think it's... Well... It, it's the idealization of the 90s of like artsy, quirky, intelligent. Ah. Manic pixie dream person. Ah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Depending on how you want to view it, physical paper books might be seen as like a dying media. Mm-hmm. And the idea of like that attachment to like old things and sort of like traditional like cultural tropes gives someone sort of like a introverted quality. Yeah, I would say it makes someone seem really down to earth. Right. That's going to be safe for our Patreon video essay. Uh, okay. You're a film critic now about bookstores. Bookstores. Got it. Like the house essay that we watched about the nuclear bomb. Oh, man. You just do a I mean, ten, ten minute video about bookstores. I'll be honest, like that the the nuclear bomb guy, he sort of incepted me a little bit. Like I'm kind of on board with his theory now. 
And even though I, I stick to my original statement that a movie needs to be judged by the way the director presents the content, not by like the context that he's yeah. not telling you about. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Whatever. So uh, back to Hammer Horror. By the time the 1950s came around, classic gothic horror characters like Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, and the Invisible Man had become passe and often used as comedic foils. At that point, like everybody was more like into atomic monsters, right? Like in the 1950s, like, that's where kind of like the horror genre was going. It was like these big, these big monsters. Like the blob or like yeah, when you say atomic, what like, do you mean? Well, like the blob or like them or Godzilla, mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. like that. Okay. So as comedic foils, Abbott Costello met Frankenstein, Lucille Ball, Jackie Gleason, Superman. They all had their turns against the old Universal Republic monsters. Um, so atomic monsters were in gothic horror was out. Because of the reduced stature and profitability of the franchises, Universal allowed a small British studio to make a Frankenstein movie, but they attached certain conditions. They couldn't use the classic lightness of the Frankenstein monster, you know, like put the bolts in the mm -hmm. neck and like mm -hmm. the square head. And they couldn't use the original Mary Shelley story. Challenge accepted, Hammer said. <laughs> Crafting an original story starring Peter Cushing as Victor Frankenstein and Christopher Lee as the patchwork creature titled The Curse of Frankenstein. It was a huge hit. So good. Filmed in color, it immediately put Hammer on a much larger stage as the, quote, the first really gory horror film showing blood and guts in color, end quote. They followed up with Dracula the next year, also a big hit, also starring Cushing and Lee, with a surprising amount of sexuality. And the Hammer formula was established. Now, of course, prior to that, they did have some success uh, locally in England with both the Quittermass Experiment Mm -hmm. And a, a serialization of a English character called Dick Barton. So uh, Curse of Frankenstein was not the first time that they had any success. But the success from Curse of Frankenstein really elevated the entire brand and put them in front of much larger audiences. The Hammer style is easily spotted because of the use of a regular cast of characters, you know, particularly like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. They're typically filmed at Bray Studios, which is a studio built around a signature manor house on the River Thames. And additionally, many films, just like Craftsman stuff, like Ferraris rolling off the factory line in Italy. <laughs> these are films that are made one at a time, meaning that many of the same people who would be working on a film together would be working on film after film after film after film. That manor along the river, mm -hmm. when you look at that, I can only imagine the kind of awesome creative vibes that you get. Because you think about all the different artists or musicians you know, especially musicians in my in my case, just thinking about recordings that they make, they'll often try to find locations that give them a specific vibe. Right. And you don't often see a movie studio with sets. Yeah. Set in a place like that. So it's very mm -hmm. coin and it has a very specific one thing I like it. about the Bray Studios manor, and I forget the name of the family that owned it before it became Bray Studios, was that architecturally it's extremely versatile. Like you can with basically just like a splash of paint. You can make it into like a proper like medieval castle. You can turn it into like a 1930s like mansion. Huh. You can turn it into like a Victorian, a Victorian era manor house. Like it, it can change both like its, uh, its look and its feel because it's just got like, uh, flexible bones, shall mm -hmm. we say. And depending on how you want to film it and like the, the vantage points and the color scheme and the, the dressing that you apply to the place, you can make it into like a bunch of different kind of themes. Mm -hmm. So, they obviously were very smart when they picked this place. Um, it was a derelict house when they got it. Mm. Basically, the, the family that owned it just like ran out of money and they couldn't afford to keep it up. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was derelict. Uh, and flip, it was, that, flip that house for a profit, bro. Darn tootin'. <laughs> Sorry. Make, make that money. 
stack that paper, y'all. <laughs> so, uh, but back to the the Hammer style. Uh, thematically, Hammer was not burdened by any of the like American puritanical notions regarding excess violence, gore, or ever plunging decolletage. <sighs> That's code for boobies. It's your chest area. During a 33-year period, Hammer released no less than 50 horror films out of the 158 total projects they made. So they did they did all kinds of movies. They did like cops and robbers stuff. They did like war movies. They did travel documentaries. They did all kinds of stuff. Period drama. They they did all. But mostly what they're known for, of course, is their their horror films mm-hmm. because they had like a larger international distribution. Yeah. I know that you're relatively new to the Hammer, Allison. Mm-hmm. What was your introduction? Was the Curse of Frankenstein? Oh, okay. You yeah. started right at the beginning. Cool. Yeah, um, you had brought it up. It's going to be four years ago Sunday. Um, hey. <laughs> when you were saying horror films, I thought it was a style of film and not a studio. So I thought it was something that represented like an excessive amount of gore because yeah. I was just associating like a like yeah, like some dude just beating the shit out of everyone with a hammer. <laughs> um, so Midnight I, meat train. Midnight meat train. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I found that. You could find a couple of the movies on YouTube. And I, I remember like we had a date and I went home and I started watching yeah. The Curse of Frankenstein and thought it was great. And then I realized that it's this whole kind of Victorian style yeah. of gothic horror. Gothic horror, yeah. It's like weirdly excessive and like so restrained and polite at the same time right. Right. that uh, it doesn't feel exploitive. But it is. It totally is. It, it's yeah. a it's a fun they've got a fun, fun crop of movies. They they strike a really interesting note. And it, yeah. yeah, exactly what you're talking about, because there's like this world of rules that British people live in, this like kind of world of restraint. But then like when it's time to like slash at somebody, like you just see like their guts dump out. Oh yeah. You know, it's like for a movie of the times, maybe not so much in the seventies, but of the movie of the times earlier than that, it was like shocking and raw. Oh yeah. So I mean, I was I was really surprised I, when I was watching uh, when I was watching Curse of Frankenstein. I was like, "Oh, this is this shit is scary." And Christopher Lee as as the monster is terrifying. Yeah, he should be. Yeah, yeah. he's got the weird like blotched out eye with like the oh yeah the dead eye like the paper thin skin peeling off. It's, oh nice. Yeah, the makeup yeah. is great. Mm. How about you, Brady? I, I did, when would do you recall uh, the first time that you either watched or were aware of like Hammer films as being like something kind of like their own little entity? I was aware of Hammer films in college, but this is the first Hammer film that I am consciously aware of watching. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I grew up. I grew up in a house where my mom watched a lot of films from the '40s and '50s and '60s, but it was all film noir. Okay. So, like, if mm-hmm. we talked about film noir, like I, I can talk about all sorts of different stuff. I see. But that kind of highlights, you know, my mom was into, you know, beat cop detective uh-huh. kind of dark murder mystery type of stuff. So any anything that's fantastical or horrifying is something that I've gravitated towards in the last 10 years, okay. 15 years. You know, Hammer did do some noir, mm. and uh, they did a Cops and Robbers. For them, it was experimental because it was, uh, they, it was, they were basically trying to make an American-style movie, mm-hmm. and I believe it's called Hell is a City. Nice. Are you mm. familiar with that no, one? No, I'm not familiar with that okay. one, no. Yeah, so... They they have dabbled in that too, and like again, like they they started out as a distribution company like back in the thirties, mm-hmm. and eventually there was such a strong kind of like like a lot of places where there was such a strong appetite for movies that the there was more demand than there was supply, 
And because of that excess, they were able to essentially form a production company and start to make things. Mm-hmm. And again, as I mentioned, their, their first real success was a serialization of a, of a radio character, I believe, called Dick Barton that yeah. they made into some movies, uh, which, of course, in England was great. And then uh, are you guys familiar with Quatermass? I'm familiar. No. Isn't it based on the, uh, the author's name is Quatermass? The, the main guy who's a scientist is Quatermass. Okay, so the character. Right. So I... The, the main thing I knew about Hammer growing up is that it's somehow adjacent to Doctor Who. Is yeah. that correct? That, that sounds about right. Oh, I didn't yeah. know it's, that. It's, it's, okay, so basically it's a scientist. He's like an action-adventure scientist, right? Mm-hmm. And he's conducting these experiments. But the, the main tension is between uh, aliens from outer space and people on the ground. So like a spaceship, uh, a spaceship like with some astronauts and it goes back. They come back, the, the spaceship crashes now these astronauts come out and one of them is like altered. Oh, He's like no. different. And the big one, like the, the one that most people have heard of if they haven't heard of Quatermass Experiment or Quatermass, excuse me, is Quatermass in the Pit. And that's, that is like essentially there's a alien stuff that's happening in this pit. It's part of, anyway. Point in is, the pit. <laughs> point is between Dick Barton and Quatermass, uh, that was like kind of like the financial backbone that the rest of these things were attempted from. Yeah. Hammer made a bunch of Frankenstein movies, a bunch of Dracula movies, pretty much all starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in various iterations of Van Helsing, Dracula, Victor Frankenstein, and Frankenstein's monster. Uh, They tried a bunch of different things. And by the time uh, 1970 came around, the British Film Society that rates movies, essentially our version of an MPAA, uh, they changed the rules with what they call an X certificate. An X certificate is basically like a rated R, like an, mm-hmm. an R rating. Oh, it is? Yeah. It's the same? It's, it, it's basically the same as an R, an R okay. rating. So it's a, you know, a grown-ups only. Wait, what, are, what is the version of extra horny in British <laughs> movies? Maybe like a triple X? <laughs> okay. I, don't, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. All right. I'm surprised the X means R. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a Shagwell rating. <laughs> so like earlier in the... In Hammer's history, when they were doing like the Quatermass experiment, they actually yeah. eliminated the E off of the front of the experiment and just highlighted the X because they really mm-hmm. want to emphasize the X rating. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. that makes sense. Yeah. So they changed the rules with what was permissible with an X certificate to basically include like much more nudity. Mm-hmm. So rather than say, you know, Hammer had built a reputation on their sort of willingness to just be, to, just to be that brazen mm-hmm. with aspects. And because the sexuality starting in 1958 with their version of Dracula was becoming more increasingly sexual. Mm-hmm. There was like this, there was a very uh, unsubtle sexuality that was stitched into all their movies. So when the, the rating changed, they just went for it. Mm-hmm. And that's how we kind of get to our first movie, which is The Vampire Lovers. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Come with us if you dare into a twilight world of unspeakable horror. You must die. Everybody must die. Sample, if you dare, the deadly passion of the vampire lovers. The vampire lovers. Perverted creatures of the night find their victims everywhere.
the unsuspecting merrymakers in glittering ballrooms with their young and tender throats. The sleeping beauties whose troubled dreams turn into real terrifying nightmares. Yeah, baby. Allison has transformed. <laughs> I literally did a double take. <laughs> You've been hiding that so well. That's why I've been ducking behind the microphone so much. <laughs> Allison grew fangs. I, I seriously was like, what's wrong with Allison today? Because you were like giving me like eyes like you were about ready to assassinate Well, because I didn't want to give it away. So I kept hiding. <laughs> I kept hiding my mouth behind the microphone. I have my... Uh, my fangs in my custom fangs that while trying to get them to set uh, earlier this week, had one just stuck on my tooth for like almost two hours. I saw that. It was funny. <laughs> yeah. How'd you funny. get it off? Uh, lots of um, swishing of very hot water. So my tongue was very tender the next day. <laughs> <laughs> but now it fits like a glove. <laughs> Your dedication uh, is admirable. <laughs> Yeah, I put him in, and I was like, "This is it. This feels so right." This is it. Seriously, guys, this is what I've been waiting for in my whole life. I'm so willing to seduce Josh with my new sexy fangs. Yikes! Come here, babe. Oh boy, (laughs) they look great. They do. Are they on the right teeth? I'm, I'm curious, like, in terms of, like, decisions on which teeth to put them on. Yeah, you can put them on your incisors or you can put them on your eye teeth or whatever you want as long as they'll fit. They, they're a little too big for my incisors. Okay. So I was thinking about that because I, I kind of wanted to go for more of, like, a 1980s sexy fronted tooth vampire. <laughs> but my, te- my teeth were a little too petite. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I put them on my, my canines. Well, they look great. Thank you. You're welcome. Awesome. First of the so-called Karnstein trilogy, movies about sexy vampires, Carmilla Karnstein is a pretty young vampiress who gets presented as a ward of an unfamiliar countess at a party who proceeds to embed herself into noble families, then bed and drain their daughters. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Although when she meets Emma Morton, she falls in love and becomes torn between her need to feed and her desire for Emma's affection. Meanwhile, the grieving father of her previous victim is hot on her trail and his thirst for justice will not be slaked until Carmilla's buxom chest is thoroughly staked. Holy shit, man. You're sending chills down my spine. I'm shuddering in ecstasy with that wordplay. (laughs) Shuddering in like like, uh, Emma. Emma Burton. So let's see. Vampire Lovers came out in 1970. It was directed by Roy Ward Baker, who previously directed Snows of Kilimanjaro. Uh, he also directed Quatermass in the Pit. He did a bunch of episodes for The Avengers, The Saint. Later on, he would do Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And the Hammer Horror slash Shaw Brothers yeah. mashup, Seven Golden Vampires. Yeah. The Legend of Seven Golden Vampires. Did we watch that one? We did. Oh, we did. so good. That was fun. That was Wait, fun when one. did you watch it? Uh, a couple on, of years ago. It was on Netflix for a bit. Yeah. That's a nice tie-in to our Possessed 2. Yeah. What's the other movie we watched? Hong, 80s Hong Kong Horror? Boxer's Zone. Oh, there we go. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the past. Yeah. So, so in addition to Roy Ward Baker, actually another connection to a previous Solid Six episode, uh, Vampire Lovers was written by, or the screenplay was written by Tudor Gates, who did Barbarella and Danger Diabolic. Oh, really? Yeah, Are you so, kidding me? No, no, I'm not kidding. Yeah, oh, same, wow. Yeah, same, same writer. 
Uh, yeah, he so he also did uh, after Vampire Lovers. He did Lust for a Vampire, which is the second of the Karnstein trilogy, and then he did Twins of Evil, which most people agree is like the best of the bunch. Which unfortunately we didn't get that memo in time. <laughs> <laughs> So, heads up, <laughs> Twins of Evil. Uh, so just first first thoughts, what did you guys think of our uh, Titties and Fangs spectacular? Well, my goodness, it's a Hammer film. You know, like, <laughs> you, well, every, every one that I've watched, I mean, you, they get the most beautiful women. They do. And like, they have, they have like the 1960s rack going on where, I don't know, mm. this is my theory, truly my theory, if anyone's a doctor... Please correct me. Mm -hmm. But my thought is like, because of the underwear women used to wear back then, the breast tissue would form in a certain way to just have like 1960s pistols just coming off of the front of a woman. Oh, like missile boobs. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm. And like, we are swimming in a lake of bosom uh, in this film. And they are all just like standing at attention. The... Rack quality ratio in <laughs> Vampire Lovers is extremely high. Super high. There's some like titties be popping in this movie. <laughs> like extraordinary. And so, uh, yeah, uh, Ingrid Pitt and uh, what's her, Madeline Smith. Yes. Oh my like, God. Like, whoa. Yes, I know. Uh, so anyway, and then the story's great too. <laughs> <laughs> the what now? <laughs> the huh? But exactly. Yeah. No, you know, you've got a you've got a uh, kind of mysterious countess who shows up with, you know, spirit Dracula. Well, well, don't don't forget about the sort of like the prologue that we get. We get that little story that kind of goes nowhere. That's right. And then like the, the party starts. Yes. You know, so okay, so the movie starts, we have a we have a prologue of a man who Baron Harthog. Yes, who is is at the local terrifying castle. Yeah. And apparently, you know, the vampires go out, but they need their shroud right, in order whole, to go back to their... This is interesting to me because yeah. like, they, keep, like, they make little twists in the, like, the vampire legend mm -hmm. and they change the story and in this one, apparently, in addition to like, like they're okay with sunshine. Like, uh, later in the mm -hmm. movie, Carmilla is okay with a little bit of sunshine. Yeah, she ish. prefers the shade. She's yeah. not going to burst into flames, but they need their death shrouds. Yeah. Right. And yeah, and, and so, you know, eventually, eventually they get there and they figure out they need to find this last grave where Carmilla's body is and uh, get the death shroud. But it's it's kind of a convoluted way to get there. In the meantime, you see her basically seduce and kill the noble women in this town until she meets um, Emma. Yeah, Emma. Yeah, until she meets Emma and she just... Emma Morton, excuse em me. Yes, she has Emma's face... Looks like she's shocked all the time. Yes. She's got these big, big doe eyes. Yep. And um, she kind of does this little like pout smile with mm -hmm. her very, very luscious, sexy lips mm. constantly. And she's got in those torpedo boobs that just go for miles. Yep. And yeah, so I get it. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so, Marce so Marcella is just like, I thought I was going to take you. Yeah. But maybe I'm going to take you in a different way. Hey, yo. <laughs> what game is this, guys? Rock, paper, scissors. scissors. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> Brady's struggling with that joke. <laughs> I'm just horrified by Allison's fangs, so uh, I can't focus. 
the the movie starts out strong because as you mentioned, like there's a whole sequence where Baron Hartog, who's kind of like a sideball character, is on the hunt to kill some vampires. Mm-hmm. And so as like bait, he lures one into a castle by like hanging the the burial shroud outside of a window. When the vampire returns to its grave, can't find its shroud, it sees it in the, the window of the castle. He goes in there. And what happens, of course, is it's revealed to be this absolutely gorgeous like blonde girl Mm -hmm. that like she looks nice like she's like walking in for like maybe a smoocheroony or something like that but then uh Mm -hmm. she like screams with like her fangs out yeah and then he just like promptly just chops her head off yeah (laughs) which is great so the two things from the scene that really stuck out to me was one dry ice is dope as fuck yes yes it can make anything look amazing because you have uh, I don't know if it was the natural winds or if it was a fan, but the the dry ice that was strewn about on the set created this kind of slow breeze while it was all kind mm-hmm. of wafting one way, mm-hmm. and she was coming out of her shroud, and then she goes and chops her head off, and the way that it's done is as soon as he chops her head off, it freeze frames, and the credit or the title shows up. Yeah, yeah, and it's I was great. like, oh shit, this is gonna be one of the best movies ever, and then. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then yeah, yeah. So the the I will say I don't know if I speak for the group, but this movie does kind of drag in the middle. Oh yeah, like you speak the, for the group. Yeah, the <laughs> whole sexual seduction thing kind of just it just takes too long. Yeah, it does. And it, well, to, it takes too long for them to figure out on the back end what's happening. That the fact that you know this right. this curse is back that they missed one of the corpses of the vampires so they've got to go back and find the corpse and, and stake it mm-hmm. and it just takes too long to get to that part so you have these kind of um, long lasting nightmare seduction scenes mm-hmm. uh, where Marcella is basically manipulating everyone in the in the manner right so she she pretends to be this countess's niece yes. They make up some kind of fake accident to get her in. Yes. Because uh, Carmilla has the ability to like hypnotize and control people, by the way. Yes. So it's it's probable that the Countess lady is not necessarily herself a vampire, that she's just under the Carmilla's spell. Yeah. But the point is, is that she gets she gets invested in these families. But it seems like the women don't want her to leave. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so... <laughs> There, I will say that, you know, when, when there starts to be a suspicion, but even who was uh, Emma's mother? Uh, uh, we don't see her. She's she's being cared for by the uh, the governess. That's right. Played by Kate O'Mara. I okay. can find the name here. So Kate, yeah. o- uh, Kate O'Mara's character mm-hmm. seems like she's jealous of the affections that Emma's receiving. Mm. And, yes. and, you know, Marcella can pick up on this. And so they have a tussle. And now the governess is just weak in the damn knees. Mm-hmm. In need of Marcella. Right. Right. And we do find that she is starting to drain her and turn her into, not turn her, but like kill her. Yeah. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of like vampire turning, but mostly just vampire feeding. Right. It's almost like she has the same sexual prowess as uh, basically a man would have. Like as, a very Christopher Lee as Dracula. Yes. Because yeah, yes. he was like out there like seducing women. Like yes. they were like psyched to get yeah, drained. Exactly. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> And it is it does go hand in hand with almost every single Dracula story that Dracula or vampires are really intertwined with sex anyway and mm-hmm. sexuality. Yeah. And uh and so yeah, she this this movie in a whole separate way becomes bigger than it's meant to, I think, for also being one of the first like LGBTQ 
lesbian right. films. Where it's, it's not even like tiptoeing. It's no. like, this is like open lesbianism. Yes. Although mm. Ingrid, Ingrid Pitt, who plays Marcella, did say that she played the character as asexual and not a lesbian. Uh, just, Bullshit. Just, well, she seemed like she enjoyed it. Anyway. Uh, but There's a theory as to why that, that could be the case. Yeah. But it's also, it's also a depiction of, um, you know, usually like lesbian interaction was synonymous with sin and the downfall of uh, innocence and things like that. And so as it's playing in with, uh, you know, vampires, of course, that would go hand in hand. But the way it's depicted is um, pretty consensual. Sympathetic. And sympathetic and, and, and sweet and like funny and lovey. Right. Like and, there's, there's a point where like uh, Emma and Carmilla have like a, a non-screen chemistry. Yes. And like you can really sense that this is not just the same thing for Carmilla. It's not another victim or something out of necessity that she's really kind of fallen for. Yeah. And so I picked up this quote. This is from uh, the website Damestruck um, about the movie. Quote, the vampire lovers has within it a sense of freedom and transgression in its frank depiction of female desire outside of male control. And I thought that was really, really well put. Yeah. This isn't, it doesn't feel like it's supposed to be um, for the pleasure of men. Well. Even, even, well, okay, it's awesome. And I, but I, it doesn't feel as gratuitous as maybe you would see other lesbian interaction. I feel, I, I, I pick up on what as you're far, saying. As far as it's directed by men. No, I, I, I see what you're saying. And it, it kind of does both because it, the the interaction between Emma and Carmilla and their performances, I'd say, does feel like sort of authentic. But the casting and the way that the, the nudity is presented uh, is very much for like male consumption. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. at least so the, I, I feel it is. So there's two things that you brought up that I want to address. One is this idea that she's asexual. Um, and then the other was the consensual part. So the asexual aspect to me could be uh, interpreted based on the fact that the man in black on the horse, who's a vampire, mm-hmm. is actually controlling the entire situation. So uh, much like oh. she is hypnotizing the entire group of people, he is cr- trying to create a coven of women to basically just have sex with people. A, for his a own. harem, a yes. harem, if you will. Yes. Welcome to Nexium. <laughs> <laughs> And then the other part of the conceptual piece, I can't remember if it was Emma or if it was the Countess, but there was one scene where Carmilla or Marcella, uh, I don't know who she was at this point, where she was forcing herself on somebody, yeah. on one of the women. So well, there was... Well, there's the whole like dream rape kind of thing, yeah, I guess you could say, where she's having dreams of dreams of a big cat. I felt the fur in my mouth. Mm, so, <laughs> so subversive with that. <laughs> No one wants to believe her. Oh, like, oh you were just dreaming. It was, you know, I forget what the cat's name yeah. is in the movie, but. <laughs> it was a big gray cat. So I, I read it a little, a little differently. And I think, I think this kind of conversation highlights the fact that it, this movie is a, a jumping off point into a more progressive mm-hmm. uh, society of sexual politics. And so it's got some of the problems of the old mixed with some of the ideas of the new. Yeah. Well, it's also that's, got, a, that's a really good way to put it, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's also, Europe is so much more open about sexuality and always has been, about nudity, sexuality, um, innuendo, far more than the U.S. has ever been, even now. We're always violence first and boobies later. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it's quite the opposite in other countries. The way that also sexuality is represented when it comes to earlier films in the U.S. versus earlier films in um, the U.K. Sexuality is much more forceful or aggressive here than it's depicted 
in films coming out of the UK at times. I know that there's caveats to this all the time, but I would say in a generalization, I think because it's more, it's, it's dealt with more frequently Mm -hmm. and for such a long time that you can still have a movie, you know, directed by men, run by a ton of men, you know, pushing the limits to get butts in the seats because Mm -hmm. we're seeing so much new sexy stuff of these two very gorgeous ladies touching each other. But it still feels kind and intimate between the two women, Mm. which I felt like was really progressive. Yeah, I agree. Like there is kind of like a, there is like a window and opportunity, sort of like a foreshadowing of things to come where I I do sense that what you're talking about, that the, that the product was not just, just about the exploitation, but there was like a sensitivity in the performance. Yeah. But that's, that's also giving this movie like a ton of credit. I know, I know, I know. This ain't no Miss 45 fucking idiots. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, what were you going to say there, Brady? The British Board of Film Classification, who's responsible for the ratings, they're the equivalent of the U.S.'s MPAA. They basically conceded that this movie could go forth because the sexuality was depicted in the original source material. Oh, really? So it was this really strange loophole. So it, to me, I, I get the sense that... That is really strange. You brought up Europe in general. I do question, though, that of the European countries... <laughs> I think England or the United Kingdom yeah. is probably the most buttoned down as evidenced by the, the I don't think so. I don't, don't think, think so. so. No, because yeah, if, he, if their, the... their tabloids are insane and they have been forever. I mean, they have okay. they have just like nudity on the front page of everything when you walk around. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So I, I still think um, and it's, it's a very body conscious country. Yeah. I believe you. I often think about it more, but I do remember when I... I never um, stepped foot out of an airport, but, but I do remember when I was in, in an airport going somewhere else, their tabloids, and I was like, whoa, that's... I can't remember who it was. It was probably a Spice Girl who was naked on the cover of something. Nice. I hope it was Ginger. Anyway. <laughs> I'm curious, to the point about putting butts in seats, that Allison said if they also put boobs in seats. Like, meaning, like, this movie was the only Hammer movie that made over a million dollars in the 70s, right? So, like, they were scrappy and tried to, like keep up with trends. They were hemorrhaging money. Right. So over a million dollars was the, was the gross. If that meant that men and women were going or if it was just a dude thing. I think that it was culturally significant. So you had people in the queer community that were going because it was like a mainstream yeah. film mm-hmm. showing this kind of relationship or sexual yeah. uh, quote unquote deviance. Um, so I think it was mm-hmm. probably opened the door to a ton of people, like all kinds of people. I'm certain a majority of it were probably men, yeah. but I, I think that influx from the box office had to do with it just opening doors yeah. for everyone in that the lifestyle. Sense. Probably also like just building on the wave of like, uh, like pseudo scandal, you know, like look at what we can get away with now. Mm-hmm. And we've got this special movie underneath these special conditions <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's going to be sensational and check it out. And, you know, they, 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 Hammer is obviously known for like casting all these beautiful women. So, so beautiful. So here you go. Here's, here is your There's, regular theater excuse to see a naughty movie that you wouldn't be able to see in a theater otherwise. For, for our listeners, uh, if you guys haven't, there's a, there's an Instagram called like ham, women of hammer or something like that. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and it's rad. <laughs> it's, it's all the babes. Yeah. But going back to what you were saying, Brady, about yeah. uh, the UK being more buttoned down, I agree with you. But I think that that really, really shows up in the style of Hammer because you it goes hand in hand because mm-hmm. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, who are often in these films together, um, are so gentlemanly and like so well-spoken and like 
regal and they have so much honor. And at the same time, they kind of have this debauchery unfolding around them. <laughs> right. But but it's it's still done in a way where it's like, I'm not offended. Yeah. No one's offended. Yeah. Everyone's just tr- concerned. Concerned. <laughs> and Peter Cushing has to listen to your heartbeat with your top all the way down. Yes. Uh, the horny so. Stoics. Totally. Yeah. Stokes. Totally. It makes it way more fun. Yeah. Turn on the music and have some bourbon. Back to the original, uh, or the, excuse me, the first Hammer Dracula movie in 1958. Christopher Lee was basically this like sexy boyfriend. Yeah. And the whole idea of the sexy vampiris was, goes all the way back to 1958. An actress by the name of Valerie Gaunt basically played a, uh, one of his victims, one of his turned ladies, that was just kind of up around in her nightgown a few times. And the idea of just having that sort of like visible cleavage and that sort of uh, almost like wanton sexuality like in the film mm-hmm. made sense. And the fact that she's like a turned vampirist, but it was mm-hmm. also like uh, a prelude of things yet to come in terms of where the franchise was going. I think it was given a it was given a rated rating R in the US because of the two puncture wounds on... Sorry, this is a total jump, but that was the reason it was given a rating of R in the U.S. That's crazy. So because that implied that he had he bit her boob, that she bit her boob, that she bit her boob. Yeah, for I'm sorry for the vampire lovers. Vampire lovers. Okay. If Christopher Lee does, it's totally fine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's t- totally and, acceptable. Uh, yeah, look, uh, Brady's looking at one of the posters right now. This is definitely one of those movies that the poster kind of oversold the movie. You know, the poster said things like, if you dare, taste the deadly passion of the blood nymphs. And it shows all of the women who are either vampires in the movie or who create a victim to the vampires chasing men and women, it looks like, who are tied up in chains, which does not happen. No one's tied up in chains. There's no. no just the chains of love, Brady. Yeah, there's no you know S and M BDSM situation going on there. Chains of <laughs> Also, the press photos you have the women all in their nightgowns, you know, with nice gauzy lighting, looking like they're about to attack you, right? So the press material, but did in a, a fun nice, way. Yes, <laughs> attack you. Mm. So yeah, it, it, the the movie is. Not as advertised. Yeah. And, that, and as you mentioned with like the, uh, the, the gross, in many ways, like this trend of chasing sex and kind of trying to keep, keep the hits rolling was an early signal of Hammer's eventual demise. Mm. Like the movies across the 70s started to get gradually worse and the box office returns started to get gradually lower and lower. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that they didn't make good movies during that time. They made a few, but the public response was obviously drifting off course, kind of like with the whole Shaw Brothers thing that we talked mm, about yeah. earlier earlier in a previous episode, where they, they had made a bunch of good movies, but they were just sort of losing track of the audience. And that was, in many ways, Vampire Lovers is kind of like the beginning of the end for them, even though Vampire Lovers was itself a hit. The romance kind of runs out of gas or runs out of uh, runway when the factors that Carmilla has introduced to the situation all kind of come back to haunt her. So... One of her earlier victims' fathers has been looking for her, looking for revenge since the beginning. He somehow connects, and this is uh, Peter Cushing's character, General Spielsdorf, who goes after and finds the Baron Hartog, who is known as the Baron Hartog, who's known for being a vampire hunter. They get together. They put together some facts and they discover or um, they no excuse me, they run into 
Emma's father, Roger Morton. And he, of course, spills the beans about what's going on. It's all put together. They send their guy, their like young dude, after the the bunch of them. He is able to get Carmilla to... He's able to prevent Carmilla from leaving with Emma by getting into a fight with her. The fight goes poorly, but he uses a dagger as a cross, which scares Carmilla back. And then she's able to turn herself into a spirit form as he throws the dagger at her. Yes. In like a film, like cross resolve kind of thing. And the gang eventually catches up with the remaining car scenes wherever they go. Um, Or back at the Karstine castle. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter Cushing stakes Carmilla and cuts off her head. Yes, Yes. he does. That's a great ending like image too. It's just Carmilla's head that they had modeled perfectly being held by the hair severed. Yeah, that was Ingrid Pitt's first day on set too is when they filmed the the death sequence. So they had this... They had this prepared like wax, like head, severed head, ready to go. Yeah. And uh, that was her first day and her first meeting with, uh, I think the first time that she had met Peter Cushing on on set. Oh, wonderful. So like, hey, it's day one. You're going to get your head chopped off now. Just get the hard stuff out of the way. Yeah. Right. Also, what made it hard was the fact that she said on the commentary that she had to sit in a chair for nine hours to get the cast. All these different actors always talk about this kind of stuff. And it's like, dude, I would crawl out of my skin and just... It takes a long time. And especially back then, it was so new kind of to be doing that stuff. What do you think they were using? I'm not sure, but I I know that they were doing full head, like live casting was not where it is today. I mean, I think today doing the casting part Mm -hmm. of it probably takes... For 15 to 45 minutes, depending on how well the plaster sets up and how well you prep the person ahead of mm-hmm. time. But this was 1970. So probably in the 1960s, late 1960s, yeah. when they were doing this for her. Probably took a long time to like set the plaster, take it off. I don't know. They probably had to put her in a bald cap. Can she go to the bathroom? I don't know. Maybe they, they sit her on top of a bucket. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I that's... Allison jokes, but like I actually think about that where it's like as somebody who has anxious bladder uh, when they have you to have sit there. You have an anxious there. bladder, baby. I do. I do. <laughs> I still wet my bed to this day, if that's what you're oh. saying. Oh, no, I do not. That's, that was a good cover-up. No, I do not. No. <laughs> no, I no, don't. No, I don't. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up, Allison. Get out of my house. No, I, I do think about that of like actors who are like, oh, yeah. It's like a badge of honor. Oh, yeah, I sat there in the chair for like six hours. It takes a long time. It takes a really long time, even if it's kind of like minimal stuff. I mean, yeah. it's like if you're doing any kind of like prosthetic in the morning in order to like color correct it and match it to the other scenes mm-hmm. and like get the wound just right, especially for um, continuity, it takes hours. Wild. Because it's all, it's all hand painted every day. Nuts. <laughs> Movies are hard to make. Movies are hard to make. And they uh, artists and uh, actors often start the earliest. They have the first call, so they'll get there at like 3.34 in the morning to get makeup done, and then they're on set. So crazy. Crazy. It's a long day. Yeah, it's nuts. Uh, so if you're really interested in the original book down on which the story was based, which I think is called Carmilla, mm-hmm. uh, Ingrid Pitt does the audio book. So you can have Ingrid Pitt read you the book. Nice. And uh, she actually got into science fiction writing after she was out of acting. Really? So, yeah, she did a bunch of different acting stuff. She did uh, a Clint Eastwood movie called Where Eagles Dare, which is also Sam Peckinpah, right? No. No. It's not. That's Iron Cross. Yes. Okay. All right. Never mind. Love that movie. Uh, she was on Doctor <laughs> Who a bunch. 
she shows up in a bunch of just like random like World War II movie characters and uh, she writes sci-fi. So she is a badass, by the way. So she's on the commentary from the Shout Factory Blu-ray, which this may or may not have been the 83rd movie that we've covered on the show. It's on Shout Why? Factory. Why aren't they sponsoring us? They, no, we need to be sponsored by Shout Factory. Can we get a hold of somebody? Probably. Just shout. But yeah, she says on the commentary how she grew up. You know, she she concentration was in, con- camps. in a concentration yeah. camp. Yeah, Polish. So she, yeah, so she's Polish. Just absolutely loved making this movie. She's a total exhibitionist. She doesn't give yes. a shit. Just her watching this movie right before she passed uh, is my sense. Because I think she, she passed in like 20... 2010? Yeah, and I think the, right? yeah, I think the commentary came out in like the mid to mid two thousands. Okay, but she genuinely, you could tell, she just loved her craft. She loved the fact that she was able to do what she did, you know. And the person curating the commentary is the author of a book about all of Christopher Lee's movies. Okay, yeah, he asked her all these different questions that could have led to her saying, "Oh, this." You know, this was terrible or that was terrible. And every single answer was positive. Wow. She reflected back with fondness Mm -hmm. to the whole situations. She struck me as somebody who just loved life. That's actually really consistent with a lot of the things that other Hammer people have talked about. Like they keep referring, because I think for a time there, not the entire run, but for a time because they made movies one at a time, almost all the same people, you know, Mm -hmm. like they would rotate directors out and rotate individual people out. But at any one point on a film, there could have been like 60 or 70% of people that had worked on either the previous film or the film afterwards. So there's a mm-hmm. continuity of people. And everyone refers to the, these family horror films as like the family, yeah. like the, mm. the hammer family of, of people. Mm. And I'm, I know there were conflicts like in terms of like sure. upper management and these people didn't like these people, whatever. But it seems that like at least the um, for the most part that the below the line crew on these hammer films were all just like amazing people that this was just yeah. like their job mm-hmm. and reading more and more particularly about peter cushing who i didn't really know a whole heck of a lot in, until i started preparing for the show i just really have to admire like all their work ethic and their kind of like generosity with each other mm-hmm. well said yeah they're very they're very honorable kind people on the set who definitely became a family it was almost like they were like a repertory cast yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's, that's kind of the background that both uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing came from was repertory theater. Mm. Roy Ward Baker was also on the same commentary. I don't get the sense that he was in the same room as Ingrid Pitt. So he was saying all sorts of nice things about the fact that she was the one that carried the movie. Mm. When the person moderating the conversation kept trying to give him credit, he would just redirect it to her. Yeah. So just adding to that kind of family feel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like, uh, I mean, Josh was watching a documentary on Hammer Films a few nights ago, and and there was a couple interviews with the uh, reoccurring cast of women that had shown up in these films, and they all speak about it very fondly about working in these working in these movies, and dis- despite the exploitation, basically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really, really enjoyed their time. Yeah. So, other than Ingrid Pitt, are any of the other women in this a regular? So uh, about that, Kate O'Mara, whose face seemed really familiar to me, and I couldn't quite place the governess, the governess lady. Mm-hmm. She seemed really familiar to me, and I couldn't quite place what I've seen her in, but apparently she hasn't done a whole heck of a lot of stuff. Um, Madeline Smith, she was a regular. She shows okay. up in a lot of different movies. She's also in some James Bond movies, uh, I want to say. She's adorable to this day. She is adorable. The other gals, Kristen Betts and I forget uh, General Spielsdorf's daughter's name. But I don't know that they are in very much, okay. to be honest. Okay. Um, however, there were there were Hammer ladies that did show up like time and time again. Mm-hmm. Carolyn Monroe was in like a lot mm-hmm. of different stuff. Mm-hmm. We we're just considering like the kind of conditions that a lot of these ladies were 
were basically working under as sex objects, as window dressing for mm -hmm. a movie, and whether or not the, the creepiness was just overbearing or if they were able to just deal with it. It had mm -hmm. to be creepy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I was reading, uh, I was actually reading this, um, an interview with um, Ingrid Pitt where she she was talking about basically the uh, nudity that they were going to have with her and Maddie Smith. And Madeline, being more of an exhibitionist, didn't really mind so much if the set was going to be open or closed. But she says, quote, Maddie Smith, being very British, <laughs> was a little more nervous about prancing around in the nudes. We had a closed set. Producers Harry Finn and Michael Style were a bit peeved about this because they were barred from the set, too. They thought it was a producer's perk to watch what was going on. And then she goes on to basically talk about how she was walking down behind, uh, you know, they weren't filming, but she was walking down a hallway wearing a negligee that she was about to go on set with, right. having the producers walk towards her. And they were both being very, um, you know, like a little nervous and excited because she, she basically flips up the negligee and she goes, wee, and then like keeps walking to kind of like, and she said it, it put a little bit of pep in their step, but it's also uh, kind of like um, addressing, addressing the yeah. fact that like you guys are yeah. being fucking idiots. It did make me think about this term that I had actually heard about very recently called internalized misogyny. It's basically, uh, especially for 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it's mm. kind of just where it's like women are just kind of like fighting back about this stuff now. Internalized misogyny was just like, I have to dress a certain way so I don't drive men crazy when I go out because right. that men are very different than women and they can't control themselves. And as a woman, I know better and I shouldn't wear, mm -hmm. um, I shouldn't walk like this or talk like this. So it, it, was, it was kind of these limitations that were just very, very normalized and ingrained in all kinds of societies yeah. all over. And so I wonder if because of that viewpoint what might have been considered extremely uncomfortable or traumatic or frustrating today mm -hmm. was literally just the boys being boys and women of that time just being very normalized and comfortable with that and just right. going like, they're just being fucking idiots. Or like, you know, like Ingrid talks about how her fangs would fall out into Madeline's top all the time. And so they'd have nice. people on set running like, I can help you. I can help you. And they were like fishing around in her. And she's like, I can get the fucking fangs out. Like, yeah. you don't need to go fishing around in my top for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I think perhaps because of how culture, the culture was at the time, maybe not saying that it wasn't any more or less frustrating than it is now, but maybe it was because it was so normalized when we're just like eye rolling and just being like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to speak for them, but I do wonder about that. I agree with you because there's a data point that actually Maddie Smith brought up in her interview that came out in the 2000s where she said two or three things that validate what you're saying. One was she never had to audition. Uh, she just got the part without reading. They then say, hey, you're going to have to be topless. She's like, I'm not really comfortable with this. They say, well, it's only for the Japanese release of the movie. Which <laughs> lies. There was no Japanese release of the movie. So she starts preparing for the, the show. That fucking dicks. <laughs> she starts sure that was a well-practiced line, too. Yeah, I'm sure. I've used that one before. So she's preparing for the role, and she gets a call from Michael Style, one of the producers, and he is cautioning her, saying like, hey, you know, people are saying that you might be a little too thin for this role and too flat chested. And so he insinuates like, hey, we got to figure something out or else you're not going to be cast in the movie. 
So first of all, it's like su- surprise number one is like your cast. Surprise number two, oh, by the way, you need to be topless after she's accepted the role. And then surprise number three is like, hey, we got problems with your body. So she said that she ate yogurt nonce, like she just ate yogurt over and over and over and over again for two weeks just to fill out. And she's like, well, it kind of worked, but like, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that kind of like yeah. pressure. Yeah. That kind of personal. It's yeah, it's just bait mm-hmm. and switch after bait and switch after yes. bait and switch. Yeah. So I and think, I think you're right is all I'm trying to say. But yeah. And, and it's just like, again? Michael style. And it's, <laughs> and it's, it's bullshit. It's yeah. bullshit. But I, I think it was so standard and so normalized that I don't, even though I'm certain there were many actresses that were just like, like this fucking bullshit. Yeah. They're, they're also, it's just kind of the thing where like, this is just what the industry is, ladies. Right. And, uh, and there wasn't, there wasn't like a platform to get them to be like, fuck off, mm-hmm. you know? Having said all that, I think I probably said nice like 20 times. Oh, God, same here. Same here. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> nice. Yeah. 100%. So that's going to do it for the vampire lovers. Uh, what did you guys think of this movie? Well, so I was thinking about it. I mean, I was trying to figure out, like, is this film influential for female empowerment? Is it a good show of women's sexual exploration outside the influence of men? Is it pro-LGBTQ and is it pro-women? <laughs> I'm going to say maybe it's a soft yes on all of Though the movie is absolutely sexually exploitive and the lesbian connections were done sweetly and playfully, but mostly to just get people in the seats and get the ratings up. I still think it was done tastefully enough and uh, intimately enough where it does pave the way in the sense that porn paved the way for feminism. (laughs) That that it paves the way to bring in alternate lifestyles and alternate life choices Mm -hmm. and normalizing them and not vilifying them. In that sense, I do think it's an important movie. I do think, just as it goes though, it's a little slow. The dialogue's a little flat, but it does pick up really nicely at the end. The ending is awesome. Um, And I think it's a great, perhaps unintended push for the LGBTQ representation in cinema. So I have to give it a solid six. Yeah, I think that's great. I'm just thinking about that. I I have to feel like at that point with um, like uh, LGBTQ lifestyles being as forbidden as they were back in the day, it was kind of like a cultural desert. And I guess maybe even to see yourself represented at all on screen was probably kind of nice. Yeah. And you know, as some of our listeners, I don't know what the age bracket is of our listeners, but some of our younger listeners may not realize that like, even in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was still pretty fucking taboo yeah, to be out. Wasteland. Yeah, I mean, though we still we still had, there was still obviously a huge culture for the gay community. It was still crazy taboo. Yeah, to be, it was always, it was always yeah. racy and spicy anytime some kind of gay exactly, stuff Exactly, yeah. yeah. This movie is clearly a cult classic amongst the queer community. Mm. I know multiple people who know this movie by heart. Okay. And they're pretty engaged in the queer community. So I think you your comments are supported by the data. Cool. The science. <laughs> and the boobs. <laughs> How about you, Brady? How'd you feel about this one? Hammer in its attempts to adapt to the times and recapture some of the economic success of decades past should be given kudos for creating vampire lovers. It feels like a bridge between two generations. It's funny that the only reason why they were able to get away with some of the scenes was because the British Board of Film Classification allowed the material from the original novella. 
The vampire lovers tried to rein in some of its erotic sensibilities, but Ingrid Pitt and her nightgowns prevailed over stuffy British aesthetic of the time. Vampire Lovers strikes a funny balance with its message. Lesbianism is a cult. Women don't need men. And that's intimidating and horrifying. However, it's titillating to watch for a male viewer as evidenced by the vampire man in black on a horse, treating the entire situation like the genius creator of a mid-level marketing scheme fit to compete against Amway of Avon. Vampire Lovers loses its footing at times. The battle over the garlic flowers went cartoonishly long, the visit to the bar was unnecessary, and the wrap-up at the end was a bit abrupt. It pairs well with Jess Franco's Vampiros Lesbos, a, a German film by the Spanish director set in Turkey. That film has attributes that I like that Vampire Lovers does not. Sunshine, one-of-a-kind soundtrack, more progressive sexuality, and a dreamlike psychedelic atmosphere. The Vampire Lovers gets my seal of approval at a solid six with three X's. Ooh. Clever. You guys wrote such nice, (laughs) thoughtful reviews. And I'm just going to read the stupid jokes that I wrote for Letterboxd. You just just lay it out, baby. Oh, man. Should just let Brady finish. Lay it out. All right. Here we go. Vampire Lovers, 1970. Tit for tat. The Vampire (laughs) Lovers has exceptionally high ratio of fun bags per fangs. Our conversation the other night was, why does she keep going after nobility? And then Allison <laughs> said, maybe they've got the best hooters. <laughs> <laughs> Fun beginning and ending. The middle feels procedural and inevitable. As sexy as the ladies are, smoking. The, sex- <laughs> the seduction scenes are mostly boob snoozers. <laughs> Bonus boobs, point. Boobs, boobsers? Boob snoozers. Yeah, boob, boobsers. Boobsers. Bonus points. Peter Cushing, and Death Shrouds. Who knew? (laughs) I am at a solid six for Vampire Lovers. We are consistent as a cast. Yes, we are. So uh, we're going to take a little break. And when we get back, we are going to go into the Hammer-ish movie, Horror Express. Choo-choo, motherfuckers. folks we're back and the next movie that we're going to talk about in our hammer ish films is horror express from 1972 now i have to make a quick clarification here when i picked these movies as hammer films i hadn't researched horror express basically at all horror express is not a hammer film (laughs) oops you fool (laughs) whoops uh but in my defense a lot of people have made the same mistake 
And when I was looking up stuff about Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and some of the other movies related to horror films, I kept noticing clips from Horror Express in the montages that people would make on their YouTube stuff. Really? So I'm not the first one to think. And the, the you hammer... certainly won't be the last. I hope so. The hammer look and feel of Horror Express is extremely intentional. And with that... For two million years in these subterranean caves, a creature of superhuman evil was entombed in a wall of ice, waiting to be free, waiting to live again. Travel with us on a journey into a world where nightmare becomes reality. Two million years ago, got onto that crate, killed the baggage man, and put him in there. Yes, I am. It's alive. It must be. Travel with us, if you dare, on the Horror Express. Yes, the Horror Express. Uh, choo choo. Yeah, choo choo. Motherfuckers. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing team up for a change to combat a frozen caveman being hauled across Russia that very predictably defrosts and starts killing passengers. The plot thickens when it's learned that the killer caveman is actually an alien that can both drain the minds of its victims as well as transfer itself to new hosts. Telly Savalas shows up to whip a priest. The priest <laughs> decides to go evil and the team of Cushing and Lee save the day right before the whole train goes off the rails. We have a missed opportunity to be playing that song right now. What's, Which one? What's the... Crazy train? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fix it in post. <laughs> It's a movie that's designed to be kind of like a Hammer film or a lot like a Hammer film. Mm -hmm. uh, the producers considered it quite the coup to be able to get both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in on the movie. The film was based on essentially a train set. Mm -hmm. and you, you heard that story, right, Brady? Yeah, I heard that there was basically two sets, two different models uh, where they could basically prepare a scene on one side shoot it and while they're shooting they get the next set set up so like there is a certain amount of efficiency that they could have oh we're talking about totally different things oh okay so telly savalas was signed to a three-picture contract with the producer i think his name is phil jordan and one of the the first movie he did a part of that three-picture deal was pancho villa oh so mm -hmm. they actually built this really kick-ass train miniature for pancho villa mm -hmm. Uh, that had like lights and all kinds of fun, like little details as well as scenery around the train. Mm -hmm. And they used it for Pancho Villa. They wanted to reuse it because it was just so slick. So they had a train that they wanted to use. They were working on a train plot. That's the train story that I got had. it. Yeah. That's which, awesome. Which plays into what I said is like, it's, they're the same. Yeah. 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 Uh, they were, I was reading actually that um, during production, there was only one set available for the interior of the train cars. So every scene that takes place in that train car all had to be done at once. So they could then go back and like flip it into the next train car and do all those scenes and then flip it into the next train car and do all those scenes. That makes, I wow. mean, this, the movie was actually done on a really low budget, like $300,000. Wow. Or $320,000, something like that. That blows my mind. Uh, they got Tilly Savalas for 22000 bucks. He was the highest paid actor. So whatever Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing were making was less than that, clearly, for the picture. There is a backstory where Peter Cushing's wife, Helen, had just died, mm -hmm. like right before uh, this movie was scheduled to start production. And 
Peter Cushing, he basically grieved the loss of his his wife for the rest of his life. Like this went on and on. But this had just happened and he almost wasn't going to do the movie. And Christopher Lee was able to talk him into doing the movie. And from what uh, they would recount later, it was like extremely good bonding experience for the two of them as friends. Obviously, they had done a lot of movies. They had done like 22 films together. That's crazy. Uh, like as either as adversaries or whatever. But in this movie, this was kind of rare because they were actually working as a team. Mm-hmm. You know, even though in the, in the plot, like early on, they're like suspicious of each other or whatever, but then they start work as a team against the monster. So it was an extremely like cathartic and for Peter Cushing to get over his grief or to experience his grief, but like be with friends. Uh, he actually like bunked in the same room as Christopher Lee because they just he wanted to be around him. Mm-hmm. So it was super good for them. Well, yeah, I was actually reading that it was a uh, that he would suffer panic attacks at night, and mm-hmm. so in order to make the nights easier, Christopher Lee used to sleep in the same bed, which I was just like, oh really? Oh, my God, <laughs> oh, man. You guys are adorable. Like uh, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, right? Yeah, <laughs> buddies. You could almost tell that something had happened if you hadn't had known this story because this came out in '72. We just talked about Vampire Lovers, which is '70, and he seemed extraordinarily gaunt. Yes. He was, he seemed frail and like he'd seen some shit. Which kind of was like the look for the rest of his life. Mm. Like he was always a very slim, oh yeah, gaunt looking yeah. human actor, but a human actor. A human actor. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> not, he not was. Bud. <laughs> <laughs> not Garfield. But was this very thin in, mm-hmm. in the movie and yeah. I think continued to be so in a lot of roles that he had later on. Yeah, no, that's that's that is true. Um, although people who worked with him oftentimes admired him for his physical fitness, kind of like Kirk Douglas, who was and and Burt Bert Lancaster, mm-hmm. who made a really high physicality uh, even as they got older and older. Ed Gein. Ed Gein. Mm-hmm. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Ed Gein was a very small, scrawny human, but he had like farmer strength. Oh boy! And and so was. <laughs> Known for being incredibly strong for, for for being a little guy for being a little guy yeah oh, yeah. Uh, yeah so Peter Cushing never he never aged in that way so people that would have to do like on scene like action scenes with him said that he was an extremely physical guy he could do everything that was expected of him it wasn't like slowing him down at all nice nice uh, but anyway yeah a bit more about the production it's a co-British Spanish production uh, Granada Films which is the Spanish side and Ben Mar uh, which was the English side put their resources together mutually and uh, created this thing. Most of the characters that aren't like, uh, you know, A-list English actors, they all come from Spanish television. So Alberto de Mendoza, Julio Pena, Angel de Polza, and uh, Silvia Tortosa is probably the most famous of the... Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the Countess Irina Petrovsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's probably the most famous and probably did the most work out of any of the other actors, actresses in uh, Horror Express. And the director, uh, Eugenio Martin, was known basically as a jack of all trades. Like he worked in all kinds of different genres. Uh, he worked in, he did a lot of Westerns, uh, but he also did musicals. He did drama. He did obviously Horror Express. He did a couple like slasher type films. Uh, but then he had like a, a bomb in uh, 73. Something he made was just like terrible. And he never really got over that. Left film and went back to television pretty much for the remainder of his career. Oh, which I guess is depending on how you want to look at it, is actually not that bad. I guess imagine the hours are better with TV. Yeah, right. I so mean, if he made westerns, I mean Italians had spaghetti westerns, mm-hmm. Spaniards had paella, 
Westerns? Hey. Stop it. There you go. There it is. I don't know. You tell me if there's a better term for Spanish Westerns. Westerns. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in uh, in Django, there's a couple... Actually, some of the music in Django is actually from one of Eugenio Martin's movies. It's called The Bounty Killers. Oh, and, I didn't know it, that. It got a different name in the United States, but the music from it is like classic, and, you know, like Morricone-ish yeah. stuff. And they used it in uh, Django, actually, the Quentin Tarantino Django. Quentin Tarantino, for as annoying as I find him, like his... His film history and his uh, his passion for you know that particular style and era of film is is admirable. Oh yeah, I definitely uh, understand why you'd be annoyed by somebody who is a person who acts coked out and drunk all the time. Why you might, might I've find worked that in bars for a very long time, <laughs> <laughs> but I agree. Like he's done a lot for movies. Yeah, my first encounter with this movie was seven years ago. And I was eating a cheeseburger at Club Twenty One. Yeah, while it was playing in the corner with no sound, but I, no, <laughs> but I, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I was like, "What is this movie? Like, what's happening? Like, what what's going on?" And then the first time I actually saw the uh, the creature light up its red eyeball and boil someone's brain with their eyes turning white and then bleed from their eyes, like I was like, "This is a fucking cool movie. What's going on?" Yeah, that's awesome. I've yeah. only had that once. Uh, I was at the Lucky. Lucky Horseshoe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were playing Muscle Beach Party in the corner <laughs> without any sound. And I was like, <laughs> tell me more. What is this movie with muscular men lifting tiny blonde women up in the air with one arm? And I looked it up after I got home. Muscle Beach Party. Yeah. Come yeah, here, uh I forget the the gal that works there, the bartender gal. But yeah, Mark is a big fan of like Godzilla movies and yeah. like other like TCM type stuff. Mm-hmm. I forget the gal's name. She's, she's a doll. Um, but yeah, they always have something fun playing. The one that I think was for us was a Windmaster. Master. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm writing down Windmaster. That's your nickname, Missy. <laughs> I feel like such a dork. Uh, I forget the name of it. <laughs> Allison just made up it's when she passes gas. I am the Windmaster. Wind <laughs> Lift you up. Lift you up. With my hand. That's that's the scariest movie you can see. I have it in my... Wish, <laughs> Wishmaster? No, it's got Demon Wind. Oh, my God. Demon, oh, Demon Wind. Demon Wind, yeah. All right. Same I difference. Could, I could see why you said Wind. That's her, that's her new nickname, Demon Wind. <laughs> what was I saying upstairs was going to be my new rap group? Digital Fluid? Yeah. <laughs> I can't take credit for that. that was... So this was your first viewing. Yeah. What were your initial impressions? Oh, I thought it was great. I was also, I don't mean to be so gross all the time. Like, and it's like, they're so attractive. But <laughs> Chris, young Christopher Lee with a mustache in this movie is like so gosh darn handsome. But the movie's a lot of fun. Yeah. The monster's super fun. The middle with, um, so we find out that if it's okay to go there, the yeah. monster is actually like an alien intelligence that right. gets trapped inside of an organic vessel mm-hmm. and can can transfer between hosts. And so as we watch the progression of the alien intelligence transfer from host to host, he's stuck in the policeman for like a very long time. Well, that was, I believe, a choice on the creature's part. Yes, yes, you're right. Cause because it's like, he kills a few people and he's like shopping for a good host. Yes, and he's we find that the creature can absorb all of the memories and all of the knowledge that come with the new hosts, which is why mm-hmm. when we see the creature killing, 
It's basically like sucking and boiling all of the memory out of its victims so their brains are totally flat. Smooth brains. Smooth brains. Smooth brains, um, like cloudy white eyeballs and blood just like gushing out of their ears and nose and eyes. Yeah. Totally terrifying. There were a lot of moments that were good kind of pseudo jump scares. There were good suspenseful moments. And there was, a, I yelled a lot yeah. while we were watching this. I really enjoyed the movie. Yeah, yeah. Lots of screaming on my part. How about you, Brady? Had you seen this movie before? I had not seen this movie before. Yeah. But as soon as the title sequence started with the strobing train lights and the paella western score <laughs> the music was so good was music very, is great very good yeah i was in it and cool. the fact that memory was stored in the eyeball fluid question mark i love that that's so corny yeah it's so cool yeah, yeah. i love it it's like love oh it. why is he puncturing this eye oh he's puncturing the eye because he's extracting the memories clearly he knew exactly where he was going with uh, his surgical idea I, that yeah it's <laughs> such a it's such a useful plot hole yeah yes uh, and I'm not I'm, I'm not going to question it for a second. Yeah. No, it was. And it's it's obviously that they had some kind of like sheep eye or cow eye that they were actually doing this. Right. With. And like someone's just running around with this on a small platter. <laughs> and I'm wondering how An many intern. they had for backup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, probably a bunch. You can get cow eyeballs up the street. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, you bring up a good point about the memory transference and like selecting a host and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The uh, Horror Express was based on the same short story as um, as The Thing from Another World and John Carpenter's The Thing. The short story is called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. Mm-hmm. And, Did you know yeah. this before we started watching it? No, but as we as we watched it just this last time, I was like, it's just like The Thing. It's like it's it's basically predating The Thing, except it's on a train. It's like a murder mystery on a yeah. train, except the killer's The Thing. Well, so the first thing came out in the 50s. Right. Right. And then there was this movie and then there was John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes. Ah. Uh. The distinction, though, with those two movies, the the things, the thingies, the thangs, uh, ain't <laughs> nothing but a thang, is the fact that they were trying to hide. Uh, the creature was trying to hide, right. whereas in this, it's, there is a physical manifestation of the creature that is just walking around. I don't know if you read it the same way, but I, I felt different to me. Well, he is mm-hmm. hiding right. with being in the cast, like he is hiding amongst the people looking for him. Yeah, but he's got the little arm thing. I don't know. I just I read it as different. That's also that's also a plot hole because I don't understand. Like, if the original okay, so the idea is as we learn through the whole eyeball fluid sequence that this is a intelligent being from outer space that landed on Earth before Earth even had life, and then somehow sustained itself through like bacteria and protozoa and then fish. And we all know this because they saw the photo of an Earth in the eyeball and, fluid. Right. <laughs> that's, yes. oh, that's just, yes. like, what is this? This could only be the Earth from outer space. Yes. This, this is, of course, set in like 1906, which is a very advanced premise for 1906. <laughs> but whatever. Yes. Whatever. Yeah. We see pterodactyls. Yeah. Pter- <laughs> Brontosaurus. Uh-huh. <laughs> so anyway, this thing has been on Earth for a million billion years, basically climbing the evolutionary ladder until it lands in a Neanderthal, and then that Neanderthal gets like uh, caved in while it's taking a shit or something. And it's frozen in the ice for thousands of years, or excuse me, millions of years or whatever, until uh, Professor Saxton, which is Christopher Lee's character, digs it out of a cave in Manchuria, which is Korea these days, um, and puts it on a train to go back to Moscow or it's back to England or wherever it's going to go next. Yeah. So the idea is that this thing has been around for a million years, jumping from 
species to species. And of course, coincidentally, while it's on this train ride, it not only meets a engineer with experience in astrophysics, <laughs> it also meets a Baron, uh, Baron Petrovsky, who is carrying this uh, strategic ore with them that is a steel that is hard as diamond, yes. which could be useful in building a spacecraft. A hundred percent. He also This is meets, an airtight plot, everybody. He also meets the locksmith. That's which right. Which is how he's able to get out of the cage. Oh, that's right. No, you're absolutely right. Because yeah, he, the first person he kills in the movie is the guy that was trying to break into the, yeah. the cage. Yeah. So now he's got, he's good with locks. He also killed the car, like the baggageman, the, the porter. Yeah, yeah, the porter. So now he's got knowledge of the train. Yep, he kills the police, the police guy, mm-hmm. and he's in his body forever. Forever. He kills that international spy lady, which I don't know why she was in the that's, movie. That's probably how he learned about the metal. What? Oh. Because she was on board to steal the metal. Oh, that's right. Well, I feel stupid because I was like, why the hell is this attractive lady in a green dress in this movie other than to be attractive in a green dress? Cheers to getting it after the fact. Uh, Bam. (laughs) Bam. (laughs) All right. It's bad luck. He gets porter, spy, policeman. Yes. And then after that, he gets the Mrs. Jones. Yes, the other professor. Yeah, Peter Cushing's assistant. Yes. So Dr. Jones. Um, His piece of ass on the side is what we're saying. I am not. Side piece. So, yeah, I think that, um, so I'm a monstrous caveman. I'm defrosting. I could just strangle people, but now I'm absorbing their memories through their eyeballs and boiling their brains. And then at some point, the jig is up with the caveman thing. So he has to jump into another character. And now it's like a who, who can you trust? Who's who? Yeah. And then he saves it all for like the final moment where, which is great. There's a sequence towards the end of the movie where Telly Savalas gets involved where a group, like a platoon of Cossack soldiers boards <laughs> the train. They get uh, slaughtered like dogs. Yep. And it's just like, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but mm. the way that they present the Cossacks is just like, you can tell there's like an international disdain. That... <laughs> 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 that has to do with the characters within and then everyone in the production of the film. Totally. Yeah. It's like, is this racist? I don't know. Is this a racist thing? Is Horror Express racist to something that I actually Googled? (laughs) They don't know. Google doesn't know. Yeah, it seems like no one had a really, really good opinion of the Cossacks. Yeah. So, am I saying it right? Yeah, Cossacks. Cossacks, yeah. Yeah. You say that was like a Russian cavalry? Yeah, yeah. So they're they're basically like a nomadic like horse people. They're like uh I mean, I don't know how to how to say it. It's like they're basically they're like gypsies that love horses. I know you're not supposed to say gypsies anymore, but well you know, there are actual gypsies, so yeah, it's okay yeah, to say yeah. gypsies. So they're like gypsies with horses, but they're known for like incredible horsemanship and they have their own like sort of militarized state. And yeah. at some point when uh Russia became the Soviet Union, or excuse me, before Russia became the Soviet Union Russia essentially allowed the Cossacks into the army when they weren't actually fighting them directly. Mm-hmm. But they were known for being like superior horse soldiers. And the name Cossack and the reason why everyone like groans and hates Cossacks is it's kind of the same sense that we talk about like cowboy shit. You know, when we're really annoyed with someone being like overtly, like stupidly reckless, mm-hmm. like you got to quit that cowboy shit or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the same attitude that they have towards Cossacks that they're like, needlessly reckless and stupid. Well, I mean, it definitely shows up in their depiction of Captain Kazan. You know, I just realized that Dothraki and Game of Thrones are based on Cossacks, and I did not realize that until this moment, so... 
Yes. Oh. Khal Drogo. You're the king is, of Cossacks. Captain Kazan. Yeah. I did not know this. <laughs> Khal Drogo, Captain Kazan. This is why I do this podcast is to be educated. We're learning together. So after the Cossack soldiers all get wiped out and sort of like the end sequence, the monster saves one last trick, which is he resurrects everyone he's killed. Oh, which all, is so cool. That was really fun. Yeah. When that was happening, I was so excited. I was like, this movie has everything. The makeup is really creepy. So they all have, there's a, there's a thing of makeup you can do, which I know I'm certain all of our listeners are familiar with. You can basically take what is essentially like a ping pong ball and you slice it in half and you shave it down to create the eye, the exposed eye. And then you have a putty around it to kind of make it look like the eyes are bulging. Oh. But the eye, but the actor's eyes are protected underneath. The putty is the thing that was like, I thought you were talking about a contact lens. No, 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 no. No, the inside that was lacerating your eyelids. (laughs) No, fuck no. They all have like a, it's all basically like a putty prosthetic that goes over the eyeball, which Mm -hmm. is why it looks so terrifying because they're obviously the actors are there. They just, it, it, they have very convincing prosthetics for 1972. So it's, it's disturbing to look at. Mm -hmm. And then they all start like kind of twitching and coming to life. And like blindly swinging around to to, yeah. get, to get our protagonists, right. and, and it's super creepy. And I was very excited when when they started like pulling up that plot point. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I was asking a lot of the actors too because the director Eugenio Martin mm-hmm. uh, said in an interview that all the actors had to learn to do the scene before they put those on because they were blind while they did the scene. So mm-hmm. like, they basically had to teach them not to run into furniture and shit. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I would assume, <laughs> I know that they like choreograph all the scenes, but for something like that, yeah, because there's no way. And it's definitely wow. like a weird ping pong shield that they have over their eyes. Yep. Cool. Yeah, no, I, I thought the special effects, that's actually maybe one of my only complaints about the movie is that whereas in uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, the thing can kill you like any which way it wants. There's like a thousand different ways the thing can kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas in Horror Express, the monster really only kills in one way. He doesn't necessarily strangle people to death or crush their heads or throw them off the train or anything. He basically just like grabs them and just drains their brain and like boils their brain as he's doing it. But the autopsy, yes, I, I agree. But the autopsies that they were pulling, I mean, for for what it's actually doing to his victims, mm-hmm. it's pretty it's pretty gnarly. Yeah. When they when they do the autopsy and like pop open the skull and like yeah. pull the face down mm-hmm. and you just see it's just like flat brain tissue. It's just like, oh, like that's what he's doing. That's got to be like, like that heat ray you were talking about a couple weeks ago. Coming soon. <laughs> like that's what it does to your brain. Yeah. It hijacked my brain. Speaking of brains, yeah. it hijacked my brain in the fact that I was wanting to send you both smooth brain memes all over the, the place. The fact that you found those, oh, I didn't even know more. that was a thing. I didn't want to spam your phone because I, like, I spam you a lot. So no, it's fine. But is that like I didn't even I didn't even realize that that was like a like a underground. Th- oh yeah, calling somebody smooth brained is very much like a came out of the Reddit slash video game slash four chan. You know what? I'm not surprised. Yeah. Now you have a couple of memes. I'll I'll send I'll send I'm always I'll post like, some more. I'm always like grossly disappointed with Reddit as I am like impressed sometimes. That's why that's why I participate <laughs> as well. Is this like paternal like doting shame and admiration yeah, for like, your child? Yeah. <laughs> 
being like, for shame. But I'm also proud of uh, your ingenuity. Oh, God. Josh and I were watching videos yesterday. And I was like, this one should be funny. And it was just completely disturbing. I was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know it was going to go that way. Oh, the, the guy that like breaks his both his arms. Dude. Oh, my God. He like ripped both of his Holy arms out of his socket. Shit. And I thought he was just going to fall on his face because we like the fail videos. And yeah, I was we like, like fail videos. I was like, that was dark. <laughs> I know. And I was like, shit, they should have put something on there to warn yeah, me. Yeah, a little warning there. <laughs> since you brought it up let's talk about so uh there's this guy and he's doing like flips on a rail like he's going around yeah yeah like up and over the rail like a gymnast on like a high bar kind of thing and then he does this thing where he does the loop where he he dips his legs underneath his body that time yeah but he misses it but he doesn't switch his grip oh no so he's still gripping in one orientation And then he comes down with his body weight. Mm-hmm. And it just, and you can hear it. It just rips both of his arms out of a socket. And I was so ashamed that I was like, Josh, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Always censor your content for your loved ones. Oh, I man. didn't. Well, usually well, they're, usually I mean, they're better be, about let's, like. Let's be real. I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> well, usually they're better about like, like putting a not safe for work or some kind of yeah, tag yeah, on there. Yeah. The mods are not doing Arm it. ripping is safer work, Allison. <laughs> the mods are not doing their job, okay? Uh, so smooth brains. Yeah. Yeah, the idea is that uh, while eating dinner in the fancy dining car, uh, Peter, Dr. Wells, Peter Cushing's character, uh, asks the engineer guy, like, why are the eyes white? And like, they're, they're eating fish. Like, the fish has been cooked and the eyes are white. And one of them kind of glibly responds, like, oh, it's because they boil it. He's like, boil it? Yeah. Interesting. And then he, and then when they do the autopsy on the dead person, that's when they discovered the smooth brain. <laughs> I'm just wondering if, boiled. like, if you boil, brain. does brain? It doesn't. I don't know. Brain doesn't lose the smoothness, no, or the the, the ripple. Folds. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't think like, so. Again, this is supposed to be 1906. You know, like the wrinkles in the brain determine the knowledge of a person, which is true. <laughs> is it? Yeah, because basically the folds. Your brain is smooth when you're born, and then as you develop. Uh, it's basically a way to maximize surface area mm. for um, memory and uh, emotion, stuff like that. So, yeah, so the folds in your brain actually do have to do with uh, basically your lifetime of your development. Development. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you have a smooth brain, we are a pan brain podcast who supports you anybody. You got to say it simpler than that, Brady. <laughs> <laughs> smooth brain, good. <laughs> We support all brain types. <laughs> We're a pro brain podcast. Uh, so, uh, one of the subplots that comes up in the movie uh, that kind of shows up a couple times is the whole religion versus science thing. Uh, there's a really great character called Father Pujardov, right? Pujardov? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who looks like uh, Rasputin. I'll get there. Give me five seconds to get to there. Robert De Niro. He looks like Robert De Niro. Oh, you like know what? Young, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, he does look like Robert De Niro. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, he's supposed to be like a mad monk, Rasputin type mm-hmm. character. And everything is like a religious symbol to him. And the, He's extremely annoying. He's great. What I like about the Father Pujarov character is almost his similarity, his like ranting and raving and lunatic attitude similar to the priest in Rawhead Rex. Yes. That is just like really needlessly intense for the situations. And uh, I guess also in love with Countess Petrovsky. Yes. Which he admits 
at some point? Yeah, he is basically counseled to the countess. Uh, but you, I love as like the scenes are moving on and the movie's moving on that she's just so tired of his shit. Right. Everyone's like, bored with him. Yeah. Like every time he goes into one of like his weird hysteric moments, she, she just kind of has that like droopy eyelid roll. <laughs> like, <sighs> yeah. And like the, uh, the moment he has a, 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 a sniff that something evil is happening and he's near it and it's like supernatural. He immediately switches teams. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, like take me, Dark One, or whatever he says to mm-hmm. the to the uh, policeman once he's been turned. Yes, this movie, coupled with Vampire Lovers, make me realize I do not understand the English language because there's counts, there's countesses, there's mademoiselles, there's doctors, there's, prof- there's professors, and then with him, I thought he was just a fucking priest, but it's like no, he's a monk. So it's like yeah. I don't. I do not understand people's titles that distinguish well, their occupation. I also their- think it had to do. With what country you were coming from? I don't know. I have no idea. Hmm. So I feel like Russian, like... Eastern Orthodox monk, right? Yeah. Hmm. I thought that that was pretty common for the um, ruling ruling class or ruling party to have... To keep a religious person nearby? Yeah, because it, it, it kind of kept, um, kept the kingdom in line with the Catholic Church. Oh, interesting. I am learning... Continuously and continuously on the show. You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so uh, uh, he keeps like at the very beginning, he suspects that something evil has happened when the the thief at the train station is killed. He tries to draw a cross on the crate that the, is containing the the caveman, the ice monster, or whatever, and the the cross won't draw. Like the chalk will not stick to the tarp or whatever. Yeah, and so that's a sign of evil. And, uh, yeah, and then the caveman said, butt out, Badinsky. Yeah, Pushed his hand away. Slap from the, slap <laughs> butt out. Get out of here. Get. So everything is a religious symbol to him. And then, of course, uh, at the end, the policeman is found out as being the host for the monster. Captain Kazan shoots him twice, mm-hmm. stabs him with the sword. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And then he crawls away dying and finds the finds Father Pujardov and transfers himself into Father Pujardov, who is the figure that like, kills all the soldiers. Yes. 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 And is ultimately the one driving the train as Wells and Saxton heroically dis- dislocate the train car that has all the people in it. Yes. They unhinge the caboose. There you go. Because <laughs> they're all up in that caboose. He's going to unhinge Countess Arena's caboose. I feel like we're really lacking in content right now because we don't have crazy train upload on play. <laughs> Hit a button with crazy train. <laughs> Brady. I'm on it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, don't worry. I will. When do you want me to play it? It's, it's just... <laughs> ow, ow, ow. <laughs> that song, right? Yes. No. Got it. Oh, you were talking about... Uh, <laughs> You're talking about no, no, Black Brady. Sabbath. No, no, Brady. That's no, it. talking about Black Sabbath. That's the one. <laughs> you did it. Oh, boy. So, uh, <laughs> the movie has survived all these years. Not so much because there's like a big cult base or anything. I mean, although I think there has to be, right? No, this has become a cult favorite. I think for so? Sure. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. But... The, the movie is completely royalty free. Like it's out there free as a bird. And we, for our listeners, we did watch it on YouTube and there's a couple versions on there that had uh, two different uh, intro credit 
sequences? Yeah, yeah. So uh, depending on which country you're from, this movie had a couple different titles. Uh, America, excuse me. <laughs> America is the greatest country in the world. <laughs> I was going to say, America, colon, the greatest. <laughs> the greatest country in the world. So in the United States, it's Horror Express in... There it Panic is. on the Trans-Siberian. That's right. Yeah. And or uh, Panico in El Trans-Siberiano or Terror on the Shanghai Express. Yeah. Bunch of different titles, but royalty free and available on YouTube and a bunch of other formats for nothing. If you want to go that route, you can. And then there's also the renowned boutique label Arrow Video did a really nice uh, oh. Blu-ray release oh, with shit. a number of different special features with oh, neat. various people. Anything, uh, did you get that? Or yeah. Did, uh, anything good on it? Yeah, there's a commentary with uh, a couple of film historians. They do an interview with the director. They do an interview with the composer. They do an interview with a friend of the director who knew or of the of the screenwriter who was blacklisted. Oh, yeah, some good some good special features as Arrow is wont to do. The there's a line and I, I'm trying to find it in the movie, but basically it's like uh, everyone needs to travel in pairs. You yes. know, you're with me and like. How will we know if, it, what if you're one of the monsters? And he says, monsters, we're Englishmen. Because <laughs> it's so good. It's like, it's both, it both speaks to the the arrogance of the English, but also to like the, the personal pride and dignity yeah. that English have. Yeah, that's perfect. It. And it's true. This is the thing that I understand and is that I don't understand how such amazing actors from England are cast in these types of movies. I I think their their theater culture has just like a really strong work ethic. Yeah, we've talked about this. I'm trying to remember what episode we talked about that on. Um, but we've had this exact space conversation. Truckers. Was space, it space truckers? Yeah, because Charles Dance. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. No, I I think it is. In uh, like again, uh, Peter Cushing is just like a workhorse. Like all the movies he's been in, he tries to show up for all of them. Same thing with Christopher Lee. And Christopher Lee's had a very interesting past. But yeah, the. the there's just like a, a professionalism and it's it's as if it's almost as if being an, an actor in England is not just being about like famous and well known. It almost has like a cachet of like being like a doctor or like an yes. architect. It's like a prestige well that's said. associated with well it. Said. Hmm. Christopher Lee in his background in MI6 where he's like stabbing fools and killing Nazis and shit, showing up and acting now that I've known his backstory more. I can only imagine him showing up to Lord of the Rings with like the green screen and all these people acting all <clears throat> acting all precious about it. He desperately wanted to be in that movie. Oh, I believe it because uh, yeah. So um, Christopher Lee heard that there was he heard rum, rumblings, whispers that there was going to be a major production of Lord of the Rings, and he was like so eager to be Gandalf. He really wanted to be Gandalf <laughs> so bad, and. He wanted to be Gandalf so bad that he actually did a British television series or maybe it was like a miniseries or a movie where he was Merlin. So basically he was using this series as a tryout to show Peter Jackson that he could be a wizard. Now remind me, the Merlin uh, King Arthur story yeah, King Arthur. is prior to Lord of the Rings. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. La Morta Arthur came out in like the 15th century or something okay, like that. That's right. So... So yeah, Christopher Lee really, really wanted to do it. And uh, Peter Jackson really liked Christopher Lee, but he thought he was wrong for the the part of Gandalf. <laughs> and that's how he landed on Saruman, which he was still happy to get and still happy to be a part of. And quite frankly, I think that that's the correct casting choice because Christopher Lee, as imposing and villainous as he often can be, yeah, like he's better as Saruman than he would be as Gandalf. Mm. 
That's my take. Back to your point about stabbing fools with MI6. There is a big question mark as to whether or not how, how much of that is really true. Really? Oh, yeah. Would you like to hear the truth or the legend? I want to hear it all, baby. Okay. Let's start with the legend. Christopher Lee, his entrance, this is the legend version. Okay. In other words, this is with maximum embellishments involved. Mm-hmm. All right. Christopher Lee's military service began as a volunteer. When war broke out in Europe, one of the first places it broke out was between Finland and Russia, the Winter War, as mm-hmm. it's known. Christopher Lee was just moved personally to be a part of that. He volunteered as a as a English or excuse me, British volunteer to fight for Finland. But he was a kid. And in Finland, you need to know how to shoot, but you also need to know how to ski. He didn't know how to ski. So they basically gave him a, a rear guard job where he was guarding just like a, a, a gate to nowhere. He was in the middle of nowhere, just guarding nothing, which is probably in everyone's best interest because he may have gotten killed just because of how that, that whole conflict mm-hmm. went out. When he got back to the UK, war was at England's doorstep. He didn't want to be in the army, which is his father was in the army. So he signed up for the RAF. He did really well with ground school. He really did well with ground training. But when it got time for actual like uh, flight school, flight training, he had a problem with his ocular nerve. And so he was grounded forever. Like he couldn't fly because of a problem with his eye. He was crushed. Like he he was fully expecting to go join the RAF and become a pilot. That didn't happen. A couple of weeks later, his best friend from ground training was killed in a training accident, like a plane crash and died. Christopher Lee was just totally despondent. He was totally depressed. He was not really fit for duty. So they basically gave him like a a like an office job just to kind of get him out of the out of the way. The office job that he got, and again, this is the if you believe the legend story, was working for Special Operations Executive, which is the British version of the CIA, basically. So if MI6, well, I guess the MI6 would be the CIA. Special Operations Executive would be like um, the Joint Special Operations Command. Yeah, it makes sense. JSOC. I'm all too familiar with JSOC. So, <laughs> so they gave him a job as a radio man. And as a radio man, because of his RAF training, he knew how to basically use radios. Got it. And his, his radio man, he started working on cryptography. And because he was trained in cryptography and trained on the use of radio, he got a more active role. They sent him as a RAF liaison to North Africa to liaise with SAS and long range, uh, long range patrol, mm-hmm. which SAS is like the Navy SEALs of England. Mm-hmm. Or Delta. Oh, I know. Josh, I played Call of Duty. Fair enough. <laughs> or Delta Force. Uh, I've the, watched Chuck Norris. Yeah. You know what? Actually, the long range desert patrol was a lot like Chuck Norris. That was his North Africa experience. After North Africa kind of wound down, mm-hmm. he was transferred through an officer exchange program to Italy, uh, leading uh, Indian Gurkhas, like, you know, Gurkha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there was a uh, couple regiments of Gurkhas that were fighting the Battle of Monte Cassino in Italy, which was really like a huge event in the, in the Italian campaign. 50,000 people died in that, that, that campaign. Mm-hmm. Wow. So Christopher Lee was an officer during all of that. Once that was done, he was back in SOE and the war itself was actually winding down and he was doing two things. He was in Yugoslavia basically looking for uh, Nazi war criminals. So he was basically hunting hunting Nazis after the war had immediately concluded. Fuck yeah, he was. And he was, once he would capture this person or that person, they were sweating them down. So he was involved in interrogations. So he was interrogating people, possibly torturing people for information on the whereabouts of other Nazis. Fuck yeah, he was. So 
that is all the yeah, high-level <laughs> high legendary aspect of Christopher Lee's wartime service, if you want to believe that. Christopher Lee has a famous con- comment about all that. Yes, he was having a... So this is um, based off a conversation from a friend of his um, years ago. And he thought that perhaps maybe now that he was kind of up in age and... Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe he would be a little bit softer on how he felt about speaking about his time, you know, time in war. Mm-hmm. And so Christopher Lee uh, leans over and he goes, okay, can you keep a secret? And his friend goes, oh my gosh, of course. And he goes, so can I. <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. That's the end of the conversation, yeah. <laughs> but it does get a little more furry than that, a little more complicated than that. If you believe that certain aspects of that story are true, then they can kind of make other things true. The records only show him as being a part of a uh, Royal Air Force liaison to SOE, or excuse me, Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol. They don't actually show any of the like Monte Cassino and Yugoslavia and hunting for like, you know, Nazi like war criminals or anything like that. All they show is that he basically got an office job and he kept his office job. So his wartime experience could be greatly embellished. And the idea is that as an actor, as a famous actor and, and well-loved by lots of people, uh, once they found out a little bit about his military service, there may have been, you know, the fish stories just keep getting bigger and bigger. And bigger yeah. That kind of thing. As you mentioned, Christopher Lee was famously silent on the whole thing. Um, so we don't really know. I would assume that he's telling the truth. Well, the truth he was telling isn't anything at all. Yeah, he but he didn't say anything. These are stories that, or like, <sighs> these are stories that other people were saying or or connecting. And he never said yes or no to any of it. So what is known, though, is he he spoke six languages. He was a classically trained opera singer. So we used to do this at Rocio's, but we would play his uh, heavy metal Christmas album. Oh, I've heard it once. I yeah. can't remember what it sounded we like. We would though. play that the last day before we would go on winter vacation every year. <laughs> <laughs> he was a direct descendant of Charlemagne. Right. You know, Charlotte, the, the like ruler of France, or like the emperor of France or whatever. He's so, he's so like regal. Yeah. Six foot five. It makes sense. Yeah. And like when I see pictures of him next to Peter Cushing, Peter Cushing is like he's dwarfed by him. Peter Cushing's my height. So Chris Lee is a big, big dude. You're you're 5'11"? Yeah. Uh, Oh, wait. Can we talk about the music for a second? Oh, yeah. I did want to talk about that. Did you find anything about the music, Brady? So Telly Savalas was connected to the composer John Kakavis. Telly and John ran into each other at a hotel and John was eager to get into the business and Telly was in the hotel, I think for some reason with uh, Federico Fellini. I don't know why. I, I, I tried to look up why they were connected and I couldn't see a connection to um, Telly and Fellini. Yeah, from that day forward, um, Telly and John worked together. They did Horror Express together. They went on to do Kojak together for all, all five years. John uh, Kakavis did Columbo um, and other famous TV shows. So he was early on in his career with Horror Express. Obviously very talented with his compositions. Music very is talented great. with his orchestrations. So we caught him at a early stage in his career. And yeah, I think there's only about 20 minutes of recording. Um, you know, some soundtracks, they'll have about two hours worth and then the director will use only like 30 minutes of it. Um, yeah, he 
was very economical with what he had. And it is something else with the fuzz guitar. Oh, God, I love it. With yeah. the whistling, with the sweeping strings. I was quite taken by the music in this. Yeah, the music the music is great. It, it's a blend of classical and modern for that time. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's just, it's kind of funky, also a little subdued and just, well, it's just great. I, th- I think it's it perfectly matches score. the mood of the movie. Yeah. yeah. Of note with this movie also is that the producer, Bernard Gordon, was blacklisted in Hollywood. Hmm. So he wrote early on in his career, he worked on a Tony Curtis movie called Flesh and the Fury, which is a uh, film noir uh, movie about a boxer. He ended up being a producer on this because what ended up happening was he was called to testify to the House. Oh, the uh, uh, Committee on Un-American Affairs or something like yeah, that? The yeah, the McCarthy House Un-American Activities Committee or whatever. <sighs> HUAC. HUAC. Gross. So a friend of his basically outed him and said that he was a communist and and he admitted to it and just said, yeah, like I was a leftist and they were more interested in movies. They didn't really go after people in TV for whatever reason. And for the listener, recall that it's not just blacklisting and trying to imprison or jail people who are making this stuff. It was more about finding actual evidence within the media that people were consuming in the time at, in the 50s and 60s that actually put forth the communist agenda. Mm-hmm. So imagine being a member of the government trying to find something and discern whether or not it's communist or not. So an equivalent to today as somebody who's in technology is when these old people are like, hey, oh like, oh, so how does the Facebooks work and how does the internets work? It's a system of tubes. Right. And so there's this element of legislators that are like, regardless of your political beliefs, you have to admit that there's a generational thing of like people who are making media when they're in their like 30s or 40s. And you have Congress people who are in their 70s trying to discern what is communist or not is mm-hmm. pretty insane. It's you're on a fool's errand. On top of that, there's I mean, there's a the whole conversation about freedom of speech. So the producer in question, Bernard Gordon, who produced uh, Horror Express, had to go on to write a number of screenplays under a pseudonym. And he also wrote a number of films uncredited. So what a really sad turn of affairs for this guy he on the interview in 20 i want to say either 2005 or 2015 one of the two he seemed like he had a good head on his shoulders about it he was lamenting that it happened but he wasn't bitter at least not outwardly to the camera i mean that was that was like a devastating thing for the film industry yeah uh when was that in like 1950s like early 50s yeah yeah but that's what resulted to him working on horror express so did he ever get any kind of like vindication or did he get any kind of like, you know, just stuff like this? Oh, really? Just people like us and people more well known than us that, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> everyone else <laughs> that paid tribute to him, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think well, I'm a he, fan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was never prosecuted. That's the other thing is that you have some, you have some people like, um, sounds like he was, he lost his career. Uh, well, there, there's kind of a, like a preemptive strike situation. It's kind of like people who get drafted and they move to Canada there is the director of Rafifi, Jules Dassin, who ended up moving to Paris uh, ahead of time before he could get prosecuted. Uh, Truman, so. Truman Capote, right? He was part of that whole thing. Oh, really? Yeah. They Same. make it sound so easy just, just to move. moving to another country. I was looking into it a few weeks ago. <laughs> I wonder why you <laughs> Well, <were>. you know, <laughs> before the pandemic, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'd probably be easier to go now than it would be as like refugees. I, I do remember when there was a time potentially of being drafted into the Iraq war mm. um, that mm, I was looking into it and it was still pretty laborious to get into Canada. So $400,000. 
Well, that's if you want to do it like instantly right away. Yeah. yeah. Well, who wants to? Who wants to wait? Why wait? Well. <laughs> Because you don't have four thousand dollars. Because yeah. I have a basement waiting for me in Canada. That's true. Yeah. With, Shout out. Yeah. It's so, full of cat turds. Grieving widowers, uh, blacklisted Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, miniature train sets. A variation of the thing. Yeah. Version like you know, uh, visible images in liquid blood under a microscope. Cow eyeballs. Cow eyeballs. Um, Ping pong yeah. balls. And an American distributor that for some reason bought the film but then just dumped it. They didn't really Yeah. They didn't really do a whole lot to promote yeah. it. In fact, I don't think they even put Cushing or Christopher Lee? Christopher Lee on the poster in the American release. That's too bad because oh, Christopher yeah, can, Lee yeah, with this particular mustache. Mm. I agree. Lots to think about there, huh? Yeah. It's that would have that would have just blown the box office. I agree with Allison and I'm the expert on mustaches on the show. So that passes the mustache test for sure. Remember when you had a mustache? I do. It might come back. Mm-hmm. It should. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens. <laughs> a flick of the eyebrow. A man of mystery over there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Got my options. I can grow a mustache anytime I want. Is <laughs> it reviews? Yeah. Okay. So who wants to go first? The movie is fabulous, but what kind of stitched it together to have you really enjoy it was the fact that um, Christopher Lee was consoling Peter Cushing through the whole yeah, right. thing. Like yeah. I thought that was just very kind and such a such a good show of like what genuinely nice people they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That alone won the movie for me. Um, so these two dashing guys use their science to uncover an alien life form switching from host to host as it destroys the eyes, brains, and bodies of its victims. All the while having moments of dryly sprinkled humor and jeering comments of their disdain for Cossacks. <laughs> Cossacks. I really enjoy this movie a lot. It's fun. I definitely find it delightful. And I was kind of yelling the entire time, asked Josh. Mm-hmm. So I would say that uh, Horror Express is going to be an eight for me, dog. All right. Yeah. An electric eight. Ooh. Ooh. With its opening sequence, Horror Express punched me right between the eyes and the ears. The strobing of the train lights with that iconic theme music sucked me in. Then Christopher Lee shows up in his snow gear and his mustache, and I was in. His mustache gets a 10 out of 10, but that's not why we're here. I'll save that discussion for our Patreon-exclusive mustache cast. That's why I'm here. The casting, costumes, and cab cars are top-notch. Everyone looks quite dashing in this. The drapes are perfectly embroidered, and the plates are elegantly leafed with gold. The only unkept person, the monk plays his part well. I also love the conceit of an amorphous alien creature getting a hold of a Neanderthal and being trapped in ice. Unlike vampire lovers, Horror Express avoids the typical genre drag by doing two clever things. It briefly turns into a murder mystery parlor whodunit for five minutes, and then Telly Savalas chews and drinks the scenery for another five minutes before dying an all-too-soon death. Horror Express deserves a spot in the Murder on a Train Pantheon, this movie gets a seven. Cool. Uh, Horror Express benefits from excellent pacing, a cast of useful characters, and a villain that continues to surprise. Everyone on board this train knows exactly what movie they're making, and the teamwork of Cushing and Lee is impressive. Telly Savalas tries to seal the show, but nothing derails the nicely crafted plot that keeps chugging along. My brain is boiling at an enthralled eight. Hey, nice. So that's going to do it for Hammer-ish films today. Oh. God damn it. What? Brady. <laughs> <laughs> You're, oh, you're supposed to keep going. God damn it. 
we can keep we can try this again. Uh, I was trying to just slide that in, like <laughs> yeah, like I was just slipping into bed, you know. Hey, try it again. All right, <clears throat> it's all right. I would not have made it past five seconds. All right, let's let's try it again. Let's try it again. So that's it for Hammer-ish Films for today. As always, you can connect with us at Solid6 on Instagram or Twitter or leave us a voicemail at solid6.net slash voicemail. Let us know what you think of either the Vampire Lovers or Horror Express. As for next time, instead of twofers we've done all October long, we're going three deep on a Halloween horror hydra of blood-curdling terror. Uh, what what movies are we doing, Brady? Bones with Snoop Dogg. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Allison? Well, I'm going to be doing the Sentinel. All right. And I am picking Mama from a couple years ago. So until next time, ghouls and boils, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon. Bye. 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 Bye.